Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Commander. And who are you? Jon Snow. Who are you? Your steward. You want to lead one day? We'll learn how to follow. Hey, everybody, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Sir Duncan, Lord of Castle Sterling. And I'm Lady Kristen of House McWegelbergino. And this is Game of Microphones, episode 53. As we get deeper into this series rewatch, this time covering Game of Thrones season two, episode one, The North Remembers. Just so you guys know, this is a spoiler-filled podcast. We're doing the rewatch from the perspective of someone who's current on the show. At this point, that means having seen up through Season 7, Episode 7. So um, this is your warning. If you're not caught up, if you don't want to be spoiled, you can still bail now. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But let's jump right into it. Our top five highlights for season two, episode one, The North Remembers. Take it away, Lady Kristen. Take it away. I will take it away. Um, Okay, so I am going to start off by talking about our new characters. Um, Yay. We have new characters and new places uh, ready for season two. It kind of expands our universe a little, which I think is wonderful. Um, we have Stannis, Melisandre, Davos, Craster, Gilly, and we have a new religion, uh, with the Lord of Light, um, which I think is interesting. Um, you know, we've, we've seen the seven, I think we've only seen the seven, the old gods and the new, and that's about it at this point are those, those two. So now we have the Lord of Light and you know, the way that it's introduced is just awesome. Um, you know, with Melisandre, I, I remember the first time I saw Melisandre, I just kind of could not figure out who this weird woman was. <laughs> um, it was interesting. I mean, I read about it in the books and I think that they did a really, really good job depicting her. I agree. Yeah, very, so. uh, very book true. I think the sort of heart shaped face and the pale skin and dark red hair and whatnot. So mysterious, you know, you just kind of wonder what's going on with her. And it's funny because, you know, now, you know, she's just kind of she's 
starting to gain her confidence back, you know, in season seven, but she was, she's broken at the same time. You know, she's been let down so many times and she doesn't really know what to do with her belief and, and, and where her path is. And it's so different from when we were first introduced to her and she's just confident. I mean, she, she and the Lord of light are like the same almost in her, you know, in her opinion. So she's in full fanatic mode. (laughs) Right. And she's got everybody eating out of the palm of her hand. Right. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. And it's, um, we get these first impressions of of these characters that are always so spot on. And we sort of get a really good first impression of the Lord of light and the religion of R'hllor in this moment too. And we see right off the bat that the night is dark and full of terrors. It's the first Mm -hmm. time we're introduced to it is amidst the firelight as the old gods burn alive and uh, (laughs) surrounded by the darkness uh, of Dragonstone. Uh, It's pretty wild. Yeah, it wasn't until recently also that I that I realized that they were burning the seven. I felt really dumb for, <laughs> for not realizing it so like earlier. Nah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's also the first time we really hear about Lightbringer and that prophecy as well. So there, it's, it's just like this one scene. And I think it was only maybe once. Let me look back in my notes. I think. It's only once that we're at Dragonstone in the entire episode, and we get so much information in that time. Yeah, it's really, we get so much. No joke. This is my number four, too, is the first appearance of Stannis and Melisandre. So I'll just like, we kind of mash together here, I guess, a little okay. bit. Um yeah, what is it? Right off the bat, um, she we're learning about Azor Ahai and and how it's prophesied that uh, a leader would pull Lightbringer from the fire, and then we get a really good character read on Stannis when he clarifies to the guy who's writing the letter um, about Joffrey's bastardhood to ever, to send to all the lords of the Seven Kingdoms. Stannis clarifies that no, King Robert was not his beloved brother. Um, the guy who's writing it says a harmful, a harmless courtesy, my lord. And he says a lie. Take it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we know he's a straight shooter who's not going to play any fucking fancy games or anything like that. Um, and he, the guy's continuing to write, and he says something about Jamie Lannister. And Stannis cuts in again. Jamie Lannister, the Kingslayer. Call him what he is. And then further corrects it, telling him to add in a sir, saying whatever else he is, he's the man's still a knight. Um, so he's got his sense of honor still. He's treating people with the titles and respect that they deserve. Um, he, he has a great line to Davos. Um, I don't know if you caught it. He tells him, I've always served thieves according to their deserts, as you well know, Davos. You know, his punishment is dealt out based on the, the actions, essentially. Um, which Davos knows well as having been giving, been being served oh, by it. by Stannis uh, previously. Yeah, I like um, I I like how Stannis is so straight and so true, um, because you know he's he always reminds me of somebody. He doesn't really want to be king, but he knows that it's his right to be king, so he's going to be king because that's what's supposed to happen. Yeah, and it's he just backing down would do him himself dishonor. Basically, um, it would it would make him seem weak, and you know, I, it's hard for me to describe. I'm trying struggling to find the words, but it would be a slight against himself not to claim it. Essentially, um, so he just sort of has to. He has the same fortitude and strength that Robert had, just 
in a much different way. You know, he was more rigid and more, um, uh, more unbendable and, and Robert was strong, but he was physically strong and he was able to take what he wanted, but he also used that for his own personal pleasure too. Right. Do you remember what the quote is about these three brothers that, um, Renly was brass and copper, like looks really great, but doesn't have much value. Stannis is pure iron. He's rigid and will break before he bends. Um, but Robert was the true steel, uh, which is a pretty cool analogy to compare these three Baratheon brothers. I, I like, like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I definitely like that. So we got, yeah, we got um, the arrival of, who else was it? We got Stannis, we got the Lord of Light, we got Melisandre. Anything else about your number five you wanted to say? We also got to, inter- and we'll talk, we'll probably talk about them later, but we also have been introduced um, not only north of the wall, but, to this really weird dude, Craster. Right. Actually, before we go to Craster, I have something else to mention about... We we need to talk about Melisandre, about her, um, her arrival, because not only is she wild and fanatic and has this crazy belief and she has a king essentially under her thumb at this point, and she's a really interesting character, but we get to see an attempted assassination on Melisandre in this episode. Yes, and, so, and, and you know that she's legit when right, you see this. Right, so you, we end up learning that there is something to what she's saying, that she is backed by some kind of power. Um, how crazy is that? Maester Cresson, right off the bat, running along the beach with a torch trying to stop them from from following through this ceremony and burning the seven. He's trying to argue with Davos and tell him to tell Stannis the truth. And I like Davos's line which, where, where he says, well, what is the truth? You know, what am mm-hmm. I supposed to tell him? And then they're, they're continuing their meeting in the map room or wherever they are. And, um, and Crescent is handed a glass of wine and puts a little tablet in it, which Davos notices. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Essentially. So mm-hmm. Crescent uh, apologizes to Melisandre and to Stannis. He's, you know, he's just a maester. He's sworn to serve no matter what what gods they believe in, essentially. So he proposes a drink to Melisandre, and he goes over and takes a sip himself and passes her the glass. And she just stands there and waits, and he starts to be weakened by the poison, and liquid starts dripping out of his nose. And she waits until she sees that, yes, the, the wine is poisoned. And then she brings the cup to her lips and starts to take a sip, and Davos is watching in shock. Um, Davos's mind looks like it just was totally blown when that totally happened. Totally blown. The, this actor is He's amazing. Going, why are you, like, you can almost see him going, why are you drinking? He's dying. What are you doing? Yeah, like, what the fuck? Like, he's just totally out of, like, has no idea what's happening. And she proceeds to drink it and be unfazed entirely by the uh, the wine itself. And as Cresson, Maester Cresson falls to the ground, dying, and blood is just hemorrhaging and he's pouring everywhere, she says, the night is dark and full of terrors, old man, but Ugh. the fire burns them all away. And at this point in my notes, I just have in all caps, this episode is so good. <laughs> so awesome. Such a great introduction to her. I mean, she just got one of the best 
introductions of any character. Right. Yeah. And as loathsome as she is at times, uh, it's just a fantastic intro. I agree. Oh, I've spent much more time hating her than loving her. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I loved her once, once. And that was when she did a very good thing at the beginning of season six. What did she do? I don't remember. She brought my boy back to life. Oh, right, right. Season six. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I gotcha. Oh, man. That's it. (laughs) Your boy, Jon Snow. Um, So you were going to, you were bringing up Craster too, right? Yeah. So, um, so, you know, we, we see Craster and it's fun because we see Gilly. You know, she says one little line and she's, you know, serving plates and she's kind of like Sansa in, in that, you know, she just says this line like, we are very happy to be protected by our father and our Lord husband or whatever that she says. Right. Not yeah. Lord husband, but she says something along those lines. And then, you know, she just walks away. So she seems like this meek little, you know, woman, which she is, you know, and she, I yeah. think she's pregnant at the time, but we don't know. Oh, yeah, that she is. Um, I found the quote. She says, this is our place. Our husband keeps us safe. Better to live free than die a slave. And it, right. it's funny because she she's totally mirroring Sansa. Right. Um, exactly. In this episode. We have two women who are like being forced to, to give this to 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 say the lines essentially who well essentially they are being slaves right yeah I mean, she's living Gilly totally is a slave. a slave right without knowing it so yeah. uh, you know it's just it's um you could you i don't could, know craster is immediately hateful oh yeah super um, hateful yeah so i think i um oh i don't have more on him late later i think that i um I just have him in my notes later, just Craster and how he is with, uh, you know, Jor Mormont and just, you know, the old bear, man, he just, he's such a guy that just doesn't back down from anything. And he's just being so nice, not nice, but, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? He's being so accommodating to Craster and diplomatic. Yeah, absolutely. But then he says, you know, the greatest line in the entire episode, which is if you want to learn to lead, you must first learn to follow. Right. If you want to lead, you must first learn to follow. And essentially he's doing that in that house. He's following whatever Craster says by keeping his men and, and he's leading his men and keeping them safe while they're beyond the wall and north of the wall to this reprehensible man. Right. Yeah, so. it's, it's cool. We get a couple examples of um, leadership being taught by elders in this uh, in this episode. We have Mormont teaching John that if you need to if you want to lead one day, then you need to learn how to follow. We have mm-hmm. Maester Lewin teaching Bran that part of the duty of being Lord of Winterfell and being a leader is that you have to listen to people who you might not want to listen to otherwise. Mm-hmm. We have Maester Cresson um, leading by example, trying to assassinate Melisandre and do, do what he knows is right. Yeah, <laughs> a few examples of that in this episode. And uh, are you familiar with Plato's allegory of the cave? You know how long it's been since I read any type of philosophy, man? I was in my 20s. <laughs> well, you're not still in your 20s? No, man. <laughs> um. Well, it's it's but that was very nice of you to say. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, so basically, Plato's allegory of the cave is that when you have people who are 
under conditions of servitude, essentially, that they don't necessarily know it at the time. So like you were saying with Gilly, you have people who are being held captive in a cave and they're tied up and all they can see is, you know, their shadows dancing from the firelight. And so you get somebody who comes in from the outside and tells them of the vast world outside of the cave with the light. I do know freedom. this. Allegory. I do know this as you, as you're talking about it. Yeah, nice. That's a great. That's a great poll, man. Yeah. Good job. Thanks. Oh yeah. So so yeah. Someone comes in from the outside, tells you of the real world, and these people who are have lived in the cave their whole lives have they don't buy it because it's completely outside of everything that they know. Right. This person seems crazy to them. They just know the dancing shadows from the firelight. And so um, eventually when they're brought out of the cave and they realize what true freedom is, which is uh, – I feel like Gilly is totally in that position in this episode. <laughs> Better to live free Sam than die. Sam brings her to the light. Yeah. Totally. Sam helps bring her out of the cave when they, uh, mm-hmm. when they leave after, eventually. That's Absolutely. pretty cool. Gosh, that's such a great – that's great. I'm, I'm very impressed by that. that. That's wonderful. I like that. Thanks. Yeah, you – I just thought of it when you were talking there. So we we tend to have this effect in each other. I think where we make, make I think each other so. think we a little do. more we, deeply. We tend to really get more intelligent as we talk to each other. <laughs> as soon as this turn, as soon as the mic turns off, I go back to being you know a mindless slug. <laughs> a slug. Just waiting for the next episode. <laughs> just waiting to get salted. Right. <laughs> uh, my number one was Craster's Keep. So. Um, Oh, we could talk about it more if you yeah, want. We'll just when talk we... a little bit more about it. Um, or yeah, we can just talk about it a little bit more about it later, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I do have, yeah, because I have more on Crasser too that okay. we can talk about later as well. But do you have a, what was your number five? My number five <laughs> is the arrival of Tyrion to King's Landing. Yay, that was my number one. Yay. <laughs> well struck, dog. <laughs> <laughs> when we arrive at King's Landing right off the bat, we get the hound just mercilessly pummeling some red shirt knight in a melee. You know, I think for... about you every single time I see the hound now. Every <laughs> really? single time. Yeah, which is a lot right now. So. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I like the hound. So it's, it could be worse associations, I guess. <laughs> like if you thought of me every time you saw Craster or... <laughs> Or Ramsey. Yeah, Ramsey would be bad, too. (laughs) Oh, man. So, yeah, the hound is just pummeling this guy and just drops him off this ledge. (laughs) It's just really brutal. Watching it, I was just trying to imagine how they filmed it because this guy falls, the guy who, the stunt guy here wearing the armor, falls onto stone floor from probably a good five or six feet directly onto his side. And simultaneously, the camera is panning upwards. So if he was, like being held by some type of crane or something that dropped him. Uh, it moved out of the way very rapidly to get out of the camera shot. So I'm wondering how far this guy really fell and how do they accomplish this shot at all? Um, I hope that some t- somehow I'll be able to find some behind-the-scenes information on this, although I highly doubt it. I'll never know. It, it really happened, Duncan. It, re- it really happened. Yeah, really. Ha- he really <laughs> died. It's Game of Thrones is a snuff film. I'm surprised <laughs> you didn't know that. That guy is hashtag dead as fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah. So then Dantos shows up and he's all drunk and unprepared. And it's. I wanted to talk about this scene in general, too, because it's just so funny. Um, mm-hmm. I love how, you know, Joffrey offers him 
offers Dantos some wine after Dantos says he's not drunk, he's only had two glasses, and Joffrey's like, oh, that's not much at all. Would you like some wine, Sir Dantos? You know, Sir Dantos. Oh, thank you, Your Grace. It's yeah. very kind of you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so funny. And so what I thought was really funny is how Joffrey doesn't even really need to explicitly instruct Sir Merrin to treat Dantos like a piece of shit. All he has to say is kindly, Sir Merrin, help Sir Dantos celebrate my name day. See that he drinks his fill. And, his fill, right. <laughs> and and it, 99% of the time, if any given person were to give this order to somebody, right, they would interpret that literally and uh, <laughs> just try to, you know, help give this guy a couple glasses of wine and help him celebrate, right? But not with Joffrey. With Joffrey, you know that this is not what it seems at its face. <laughs> well, anytime Joffrey is being nice to anybody, he's not. He's yeah. being super, super psycho. Super psycho. I mean, he's he is the worst kind of sociopath. He's Caligula. You know, so yeah. I just I, I can't even imagine that he would even employ anybody with any sort of heart to them, Yeah, um, which is remarkable since he has Sandor and, you know, he doesn't realize that the hound is, you know, this big pile of mush underneath all of the rough exterior that he has, you know? Yeah, just a big teddy dog. He is. Um, but Marin, Marin Trent, I mean, you really learn how awful he is when um, when he gets to Bravos. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, really, really so, bad. So glad for his demise. But um, but yeah, it, it is interesting how, you know, you have to know that, though. I mean, they have to know, OK, I I, ha- I serve a crazy king, a crazy, entitled boy king who doesn't go to war, but kills at his pleasure just yeah. to do it. They definitely you know? know it too. Barristan says as much to Danny about serving the Mad King. You know, he tells her with no hesitation that he was mad. <laughs> right. It's crazy. Um, yeah. So right after that, they're they're helping Sir Danto celebrate. And uh, Joffrey says something and calls him a fool. And... Sansa points out, oh, he is a fool. You're so clever to see it, you know, and basically ends up saving Dantos's life by having manipulating Joffrey, manipulating Joffrey and, yeah, and having him turn him into his fool. Um, and then out of nowhere, Tyrion shows up <laughs> with, a, with a great little line, beloved nephew. <laughs> Everybody we turns. missed you. We looked for you on the battlefield. Right. Where were you? <laughs> you were nowhere to be found. Which is uh, reminded me of Ned saying to Sir Arthur Dane, "We looked. I looked for you on the trident at the battlefield, and uh, oh yeah, he was nowhere to be found there either." So that's kind of a cool little parallel. So um, I read um, in some show notes um, nice. over over this week about Tyrion's entrance. I, I don't. I didn't mean to step on you, but no, not um, at all. But it was it talked about him arriving, Tyrion arriving in his armor. Yeah, I was just going to mention that too. Oh, then go for it. No, 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 no. You, I, you have something different. I was just going to mention that he was wearing armor. <laughs> oh well, so the idea, so the idea was, is that um, he was supposed to arrive in the armor to kind of show that he has been in it and to show that he is, you know, kind of this hardened war guy now. Um, and they said so. Um, what did they say? It was it was Weiss and Benioff that talked about it. Um, but they said he clearly did not go the entire distance in his armor. So this was a very planned right. um, yep. entrance for Tyrion. Yeah, it was He's, a show. 
Yeah, he pulled pulled the horses over, got into the armor, and then came into King's Landing to, you know, show, to make his own entrance for Joffrey. So I just thought it was interesting. That's really cool. I like that too. This, it's interesting that you brought it up too, because this is the first time around watching this episode that I, that it like stuck out to me that he was wearing armor. And um, there's another scene where when he, so he arrives, right? uh, Because the scene's coming up where he, um, you mentioned that he's hardened, you know, at this Mm -hmm. point. And he kind of illustrates that later when he's talking to Cersei and he says, it's been a remarkable journey, you know. I was taken yeah. prisoner. I slept in a sky cell. I pissed off the edge of the wall. I, I fought with the with mountain the clans, <laughs> the hill tribes, <laughs> yeah. etc. And uh, now he's hand of the fucking king. <laughs> so, yeah, he's definitely hardened at this point. And I really did enjoy the fact that he showed up in armor. Um, and, <laughs> and I just love how he unhinged Cersei and Joffrey just yeah. by arriving. And they both said the same thing. I, I, I uh, took note of that, how nice. uh, Joffrey goes, wait, why are you here? You know, like <laughs> yeah. Some child tone. And then Cersei just looks at him and is like, why are you here? Why <laughs> are you here? You know, That's so funny. <laughs> like, it was so awesome. That's great. Yeah. And uh, he. When he mentioned, uh, I looked for you at the black at the bat at the battlefield. You were nowhere to be found. It also foreshadows Joffrey abandoning the battlefront at uh, the Battle of Blackwater Bay as well, where Tyrion is in his armor. Also, um, so mm. that's kind of funny. The kind of foreshadows that that scene here as well with Tyrion being in armor and talking about how Joffrey's nowhere to be seen on the battlefield. Which is exactly what he is doing when he rallies the troops um, at the Battle of Blackwater. He's saying, you know, that the king it's isn't like here, but I away. am. You know, yeah, yeah. A couple episodes away, yeah. Oh my gosh, Joffrey. I mean, the more you talk about this kid, the more you just hate him. Yeah, totally. As and whereas his siblings are seems relatively normal, um, and Tyrion actually seems to really like Marcella and and. And Tommen, he shows up. He's like, Marcella, you're looking so beautiful. Tommen, you're going to be bigger than the Hound one day and much better looking. And he doesn't like me. <laughs> this one doesn't like me. <laughs> Bronze response there. I can't imagine why. <laughs> one of my favorite exchanges in the whole episode. <laughs> yeah, it's great. He doesn't like me. That one doesn't like me. <laughs> yeah. And we do, we learn more about Tyrion's character here in a number of ways, too, um, as he does seem genuinely sorry for Sansa's loss of her father, Ned, and has to point out to Joffrey that, you know, you just lost your father too. You should be feeling some type of sympathy for her. Um, so we, we we learn that there is, you know, as, as much as there is the tough exterior to Tyrion with the armor and how he's hardened and he's a Lannister true to form in some senses that there is an, an under, you know, like a, like, there's like a the hound with his teddy dog interior. He's the teddy imp inside. Um, he's you know he's got a soul and whatnot. So he goes inside right as the uh, the council, the small council, is receiving a white raven from the citadel um, that signals the change in seasons. And Baelish says that they have enough food for a five year winter, and if the winter lasts any longer, then there'll be a lot fewer peasants, which is pretty <laughs> fucked up, <laughs> super hardcore, and. Uh, Remember that Daenerys just burned a whole wagon train of food and supplies that was supposed to go to King's Landing, too. So she may have just sealed the deal for a whole bunch of peasants as well. 
we learn that Jano, Jano Slint owes his title and land to Cersei. Um, I thought it was funny how Tyrion arrives and he's whistling the reins of Castamere. <laughs> As yeah, you know in. what? I I read that in in one of the comments, and I right. missed that on first watch. Oh, yeah. I it took me a few watches before I I noticed that too. And um, yeah, one of our astute listeners points out that once once you know that song, it's pretty apparent how often you hear it um, on the show. It's it's sort of a consistent, very foreboding. Theme. Yeah, very foreboding. Um, so so that it's was cool. funny that you would that he would be whistling it in a jovial manner coming into the castle it's almost <laughs> yeah. like he's like i'm here to kill the party dudes <laughs> yeah this lannister is coming to take over now <laughs> yeah so great i hello i am the tiny buzz kill yep <laughs> and uh he has a great line to uh cersei when they're they're alone as well he says you love your children it's your one redeeming quality that in your cheekbones which in your cheekbones <laughs> <made me> <laughs> Um, I, every time I see him walk into this small council meeting though, and say, uh, to Cersei says, sister, you're looking more ravishing than normal or whatever. And he goes up and kisses her on the cheek. Every time I and see it's that. it's like she got, yeah. No, go, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. Every time I see that. Every time I see that, it makes me think of the bad lip reading where he walks in and, and goes face lick. <laughs> Ooh, girl, oh. <laughs> you smell real good. <laughs> I always think I always think of um, that it looks like she's being kissed by grayscale. You know, she's just kind of like, "Don't touch me! Don't touch oh, me!" Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She does not dig Tyrion, pretty much. No, and you know what? It has to be because he's just as smart as her, and it probably makes her crazy because she thinks she's the smartest, and she's not. Right? Yeah, she's definitely not, and she's definitely getting a dose of that right now. As Tyrion points out to her, you know, we had three Starks to trade. You cut one's head off, and then let the other, and another you one lost escape. The other one, and he, his, his look on his face in this scene numerous times, where he's just smirking at Cersei, is just beautiful Dinklage just kills it here and um, one of these moments is <laughs> this must be hard for you to be the disappointing <laughs> child the disappointing <laughs> child right and uh, he's just grinning and just eating it up because he's usually the lowest of the low as as far as Lannisters are concerned Cersei's been the queen for all these years while Tyrion's been setting up cisterns and drain systems for Casterly Rock or right. <laughs> you know whoring himself and drinking and reading now he's the hand of the king and he's got more power than Cersei and she's like doing all this stupid stuff and for once he's being recognized for his intelligence by his father which we talked about last episode or the mm -hmm. episode before um Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So yeah, just it's great to see Tyrion's triumphant um, arrival to King's Landing here, and him sticking it to all these losers. And even it's so great. Joffrey doesn't even know why he's there. <laughs> Joffrey's like, "Why are you here? What business are you talking about?" When he says, "You know, we've 
got business to take to attend to or work to do and he doesn't even answer him just <laughs> totally blows the king off doesn't even tell him what what he's doing there or what work needs to be done which is hilarious so yeah, that's my number five yeah it's funny it's he you know what he doesn't ever seem like he's scared of joffrey whereas i think everybody else is scared of joffrey or oh yeah you know, they 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 tread very lightly around him and and Tyrion and and to some extent even Tywin you know in later seasons um, only two yeah. they both don't seem to back down from Joffrey they see him as as who he really is um, yeah and because he doesn't of, do anything he doesn't go to the small council meetings he doesn't fight in the wars he doesn't take part in strategy he doesn't. You know, he he talks about, you know, women and and how, you know, simple or stupid they are. And I mean, he he all he wants to do is sit in his chair. Oh, yeah. And 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 murder babies. (laughs) Yeah. Like that's literally it. And he just wants to prove that he's king. It's like his whole life is proving to people that he's king. Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty pathetic. Pretty pathetic. Um, And speaking of being scared of Joffrey. We got this is actually the first time we've seen Cer- Cersei scared because um, when season seven was airing and and Jon Snow and the Eastwatch seven or at least the ones that remain um, or who, some of them traveled south and brought the, the white to King's Landing and mm-hmm. let it out of the box and it ran at Cersei. Blah, blah, and we got this look of horror and terror in Cersei's face. And I was saying, wow, this is the first time we've seen Cersei be scared. Like, she looks terrified. But I was totally wrong because I saw it this episode when she slaps Joffrey and, and he responds to her, what you just did is punishable by death. And she has this look of and just she terror. Doesn't even, like, she breaks eye contact with him. I mean, she, like, looks down like she's some sort of a peasant. Like, she won't even look back she, up yeah, at him. Yeah, she won't even look at him. And she's just looking scared as fuck. And he says, you will never do it again. Never. You'll never do that again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> gosh. Never. Yeah. I, have she, I have the same exact thing <laughs> written down. Cersei legitimately looks frightened of her son. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's written down. I totally, totally, 100% agree. Yeah, so this is the first and only other time we really see Cersei look scared at all in the entire mm-hmm. series. Um, so that, yeah, I thought that was noteworthy. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But then it's like, I, I forget, I think it was, I think it was after that scene that she looks at Tyrion and she's like, Joffrey is king. Right. And she's like looking at him going, Joffrey is king. You are here to serve Joffrey. You are here to please Joffrey. Like, and I think I'm trying, I have, I have it all. Oh no, I'm wrong. No, she says Joffrey is king, blah, blah, blah. And then it's the second to last scene where um, Joffrey threatens to kill his own mother. (laughs) Which did you notice that I mean, who they hasn't were... threatened to kill their own mother, really? It's <laughs> <laughs> just... dark, dude. <laughs> <I> just... um, <laughs> um, did you notice that they're wearing Lannister colors, too? Who? Joffrey. Oh, I, I did not notice. But yeah, now that you mention it, he's always wearing the Lannister crimson um, and gold. Yeah. Yeah, good catch. Um, just... Illustrating even further that he's a Lannister to the core. To the dirty, rotten core. <laughs> the dirty, rotten core. The dirty, <laughs> rotten, bastard core. 
There you go. We'll just keep at, we'll just keep adding to it as weeks go on. The dirty, rotten, bastard core. Okay, perfect. What's next week? <laughs> I, I have uh, one of my friends, my best friend, um, Don, uh, just had a son last week uh, with his fiance. So congratulations, Don. But I was like, oh, how's a little bastard doing? Because <laughs> he's technically a bastard, right? Yeah, um, he is. And he was like, hey, he's not a bastard. You've been watching too much Game of Thrones. <laughs> You're like, hey, man, bastard is as bastard does. I'm sorry. Congratulations <laughs> on being a father. I'm really yeah, congratulations. Awesome. I'm sorry to talk about your new son this way. It's horrible. Hey, it, just, it is what it is. There's nothing wrong with being a bastard. So what was your number four? Um, my number four, now I'm officially going out of order here. So, um, I'm actually, I wanted to talk about the wildlings for a second. Yeah, let's do it. So it's, it's small, but I thought it was very noteworthy to be a part of the top five because I had like an aha moment was, um, you know, Craster's talking about, or, you know, old bear, a Lord commander is asking, uh, Craster. He's like, Hey, we went by like six villages on the way here and they're all abandoned. Like, what's going on? And Craster said, Oh, well they're gathering their armies. And so, right. you know, with what you know, at that point in the show, it sounds like they're, they're gathering, gathering up their <laughs> army to fight, to fight us. Right. Yeah, and really what south. they're doing is all they want to do is go south because they know what's coming. It's it's the whole idea of the why. Like at this point in, in the rewatch this is my third rewatch of the series now. And so what what I thought was very interesting is that in this rewatch um, with the wildlings is that. I find myself trusting what they're doing and what they're saying. You know, Osha earlier, who is a wildling, she tells Bran, no, the red comet's for the dragons. It means that there's dragons, buddy. Right. And where does she get that from? Like, we know all these interpretations, but there's nothing that seems too obvious about having a relation to dragons, except for maybe fire being, you know, having some red tints to it every once in a while. Or right. Yeah, I don't know. But what I know is, is that since, you know, we as a viewer know that that's true. Right. We also we also know that she's a wildling. And for some reason, the wildlings seem to have like their pulse on everything. You yeah, know? they have like oh, ancient knowledge when, or something. Yeah. I mean, winter's coming. OK, well, we all hate each other, but we all want to keep breathing. So we're going to have to find a way to work together and get south of the walls so that we can get our own protection from what's coming from the Night King. Yeah, and then um, Gilly t- or uh, then uh, Osha telling Bran that Rob's marching his army the wrong direction. Right, um, right, and she says he needs to be going north. And so it's interest. It's just interesting to me. You know, the more I see the wildlings, the more before I just thought, oh gosh, you know, these dumb wildlings. What are they doing? You know? <laughs> and now yeah. here we are, a couple a couple watches later, and you sit there and you're like wow, you know, how do you guys know all of this? And and we should have listened to you way sooner than we really did. Yeah, way sooner. Um, like even Osha knew more than Maester, Maester Lewin did about like White Walkers and the threat beyond the wall and everything like that. Um, right. Yeah, they know what's going on. It's pretty wild. Yeah. So, you know, I just thought that it was noteworthy to say they're not getting ready to fight. They're preparing to survive. They, they know that they're going to have to fight, you know, uh, the people of Westeros only because they understand that 
they are more concerned with more petty matters like, you know, who's king or who's queen or, you know, who gets to be the liege lord of what land. Right. Um, You know, and they're just like, "Uh, hi. Yeah, we just want to live. Can you help us do that? We'd we'd love that, you know. (laughs) So it's just it's an interesting progression. And, And I thought it was noteworthy. Nice. So are we calling that your number four? Yeah. Okay, sure. cool. So we'll we'll transition <laughs> from your number four to my number one, which will now be my number four, which was just more about Craster's Keep. Um, oh, so, we're staying north of the wall. Yeah, might as well, you know, lump it together. <laughs> um, so I, th- I thought it was Dolores Ed. Had, people always call him Dolores Ed. Um, so I just want to get this out there. It's Dolores, D-O-L-O-R-O-U-S, which means like, like, um, it, it, like sadness, essentially, like of Dolor. Um, so it's not Dolores, like the women's na- the woman's name, but Dolores Ed. He's funny, man. He's he, they come up on Craster's Keep, and he's like, "I was born in a place like this." <laughs> Later, I fell on hard times, you know. Which obviously, <laughs> it's not the like necessarily the nicest, most upkept place, Craster's Keep. So, he's he's always got great little one or two liners like this throughout the series. He's a consistent source of comedy on the I show. I do like him. I the, agree. The books. I like uh, that whole little band of brothers. Oh yeah, with yeah, Pip and Gran and Dolores Ed and, and Sam. Sam. <laughs> yeah, That's but, a girl. I haven't seen a girl in like six months. I haven't seen months. a girl. In, <laughs> yeah. So hey, funny. so does that mean that they've been traveling for six months, or does that mean it's been six months since he first got to Castle Black? That's what I would um, would take it to mean that since six months since uh, he's gotten to Castle Black. Because I know that there's women in like the villages or whatever that they all go to secretly visit. So right, I Moles didn't know town if, and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think that they've. I think they've been pretty much at Castle Black during the training and stuff like that. I don't. I don't really feel like they've left other than John's midnight ride. So I think it's probably since he's been to Castle Black. Um, okay. So we also learn very creepily that Craster marries his daughters who give him more daughters and then he marries them and they give him more daughters and just keeps going and going forever um which is super gross did you notice also that it um john was the only one that seemed to say uh what about the boys yes yeah exactly the rest of them looked like what what are you talking about like it had never dawned on them to ask about oh well have you ever had a boy obviously it's not just girls that are being born there's like a hundred women here you're telling me you're shooting women every single time (laughs) what happens to the boys (laughs) so yeah it's great john is just like light years ahead of everybody and Interestingly, we do all that learn, brooding. yeah, all that moping and brooding and <laughs> looking in the mirror. <laughs> He's um, pretty. He's so <laughs> yeah, pretty. Just as Craster says, <laughs> "He's prettier than half of my daughters." <laughs> He's prettier than all of the daughters. Come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, we do learn that that Mormont knows about what happens with the boys um, in the future as well. He admits to John that he does know after John tells him uh, what he witnesses with the white Walker in a, in a coming episode. 
Um, we get another reappearance of the the Southerners joke, you know, where mm-hmm. somebody says, we're not Southerners, and somebody else says, you're from south of the wall, you're Southerners to us, <laughs> right? So this time it's Jon Snow, who's, who's uh, a bastard Southerner to Craster. Um, Craster is so funny, too. What's your name, boy? Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. Listen to me, Bastard, you're all you're all from south of the wall. See, uh, again, the wildlings, man, they know everything. Yeah. Even stuff that has nothing to do with them. It's you know, it's so it's like Europeans and Americans. I swear Americans are so stupid. Yeah, and Europeans they know everything. Sit there, they're like, huh, what are you talking about? And they're like, I know everything about you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I like how um I like like the game that they sort of have here, which Mormont seems to be prepared for, which he wants answers and Craster wants stuff, right? So first he mm-hmm. demands wine for some answers and he asks why all the wildlings are leaving and Mormont's like, grab the Dornish Red. So they get the Dornish Red for Craster, who immediately, after just having heard the order being given, doesn't wait to get the wine. He just he opens up, says they went north to join up with Mance Raider. He next demands the axe on the guy next to uh, Mormont for, um, in exchange for telling everybody that the... Um, that they're gathering an army, which we talked about a little bit, and mm-hmm. you astutely pointed out as well, um, sort of creates the impression that they're creating an army to fight their way into the south, um, to fight their way through the Night's Watch and through any forces to basically to get into the the Gift or wherever um, wherever they want to go in the Southern Kingdoms, which we know is not the case, but um, it's creating a tension with the Night's Watch that doesn't necessarily need to be there. It's just es- mm-hmm. further escalating the thousands of years of old tension between these two groups of people um, based on a misunderstanding, um, which is pretty... Well, even when they start explaining it, people still don't want to hear it. Right. Yeah, they just... Yeah, they don't won't buy it at all. Uh, except for Stannis, who uh, ends up going north. Um, very interesting. It's just... Yeah, this is all very well, well written. Um so we we have our little foreboding question of what happens to the boys. We learn about the the wives and the the daughters and Gilly is there and everything. And oh, there's a, a hilarious interaction between Mormont and um, Craster, where Craster is. <laughs> they're two old guys who have known each other for a long time sitting there. And Craster's looking at Mormont like, oh, am I making you jealous? Seeing me with all my wives to warm my bed while you're just at the wall (laughs) with your boys. (laughs) You you chose the path. You know, we chose our different paths, right? But you chose the one that has nothing but boys on it, (laughs) which is pretty funny. Yeah, and gross. Yeah. (laughs) And, um... He's not digging Jon Snow, and he's like, any man who lays a hand on one of my wives loses a hand, especially you bastard, you know. And Mormont slams Jon Snow against that that pole outside and is, you know, obviously not happy with his conduct, uh, the way he's conducting himself inside the um, the keep there. And he says, who are you? And he's like, Jon Snow. And he's like, who are you? And he's like, you're Stuart. You're Stuart. So, yeah, I had a... Um, uh, an interesting thought on that was that, you know, John has such this chip on his shoulder, 
you know, I mean, in, in the first couple of seasons, it's just so hard for him to bury it. You know, he just walks around because he's somebody that's been on the outside for so long. And he's, he's somebody that was never really a part of the Stark family. And they never let him forget that he wasn't a real Stark. But you he know? feels like he, he deserves it, you know, like that. He feels like he deserves level. a place, I think, you know, a place. And I don't think he's had one. And I think as a result, it's just been this huge... Um, just this wall that he puts up, right? Yeah. And um, and he's so angry and he pouts and he broods and we all talk about it and laugh about it. And, you know, it. this is just kind of, it's, this is kind of the beginning here um, of, of John becoming a part of something, of him finding his place and finding his stride. And, and first he, he needs to be told um, you know, if you want to lead, you have to learn how to follow because he's never been taught to follow. He's just been taught to be quiet, to stand to the side, to not make too much of himself. And now they're saying, you know, if you want to be a part of this, you need to learn how to first be a part of it so that you can lead it right. again, you know, and it's just, it's so fun to go back and see the beginning of this character that we know now, you know, as this warrior i mean arguably the best warrior in in the entire known universe of um a song of ice and fire uh with yeah. what he's been through with his and, morality combined with his you know with right. his fighting style like his capability his physical capability with his moral philosophy uh, essentially and he, yeah he's getting wiser and 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 it's because of these people that he's come across that have taught him, right? One of them, most notably being uh, Jor Mormont. Right. Right? Jor Mormont. Jor, Jor. Jor, Uh, whatever. Either way is fine, yeah. Um, But he's he's the biggest... I, I I would even say that he's a bigger influence than Ned Stark ever was because Mormont's the one that taught him how to lead. Right. Mormont's the one that taught him how to be a man. He taught him how to um, be him, how to how to come into his own, really. Right. Yeah. Right. Ned and, held him back um, for so, all this time, and you know, right. not intentionally, but Mormont's to keep the him one. alive. It's like uh, Ned Stark wanted to keep him alive. Yeah, Ned was maintaining him in a vegetative state. And and now Mormont is changed the light cycle so that he can flower. Right. Well, because Mormont doesn't know who he is. Right. So he's not treating him with like he's made of glass because he doesn't know. There's a jet going over my house, so if you hear that, <laughs> I apologize. That's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and also, I think the other por- important part that you brought up is um, that he's needs to be a part of something, and I think that's important. He needs to recognize that his ego is playing too much into it right now. He needs to be integrated as a part of a larger whole. So when when uh, Mormont's asking him, who are you? And he's like, Jon Snow. And he's like, wrong fucking answer, dude. Right. You are just a man of the Night's Watch at this point. Like, leave your ego out of this and just be a cog for now, you know? Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's fun. It's fun to see. It's fun to watch Jon grow. Yeah, and this is the first time, too, that Mormont has seemed to acknowledge Sam's speculation of the plot to essentially train John to be a leader. So he's right. like, you want to lead one day? You know, and John's like, oh, shit, you know, like kind of just nods like he's surprised that Mormont was up that upfront about it, potentially. Um, 
and yeah, just it's it's cool to see John realizing more and more the position that he's in and trying to um, grow and learn to be more responsible and play the role, um, which is pretty pretty you know it's awesome, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. I agree. So I that's pretty much agree. my number four. How about your number three? Um. I would probably say I um I would probably say cuz I'm I like I said I'm like totally out of order here at this point cuz we have a lot of the same but um you know I, I guess one of them was following the red comet um you know this is the first time that we see the comet um and what 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 I found was kind of cool was for most of the episode that's how we panned in and out of the scenes Right. right. They'd be done with Winterfell and they'd go up. Yeah. The great transitions. And um, and so we were my husband and I were watching it and I said, I just love how they go. You know, they we, we were watching the Daenerys scene. You know, I was like, I love how they just go up, you know, from the red waist. And then and then all of a sudden you're down and he goes in the white waist. And I'm like, yeah, oh, we go from the red waist to the white waist. That's, that's totally great. true. That's <laughs> so, beautiful. I told him that I wanted to use it and that I would uh, give him a shout give out. So that was me <laughs> giving him a shout out. Go Dave. I like that one. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I thought that that was really good. So and we totally you know, missed I, last year um, to like, or last year, last episode, um, the season one finale. Doesn't Danny notice the comet above Drogo's pyre? Did they, they had to have shown that on the show, right? It's a big thing in the I books. Don't, she says, like, so. she couldn't have asked for a stronger omen. The red comet blazed through the sky as she lit the pyre. Um, I've, I've, you know, rewatching these episodes, half the time I'm looking down as I'm writing, typing notes, essentially. So I miss certain little things. And I feel like I may have missed them showing us a shot of the comet in the sky. Or was this the first time we saw the I comet? I think this was, was this the year? first time that we saw the comet. She was looking up while she had Drogon um, on her shoulder trying to give them meat. I think she saw the comet then. Damn, that's too bad because that would have been a really powerful moment if the comet showed up in the sky right before the fire, the pyre. Especially, I mean, leaving for the year being like, what was that? Yeah, right. That and the dragon simultaneously. Like, what the hell just happened? (laughs) There was a lot that happened in that last scene. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, you know, what? So, hang on. Let me go to my notes because there was. um, So, with this comet, there's. you know, there's a lot that kind of comes with it. And, and one of them is what Melisandre was talking about with Lightbringer and, you know, her own prophecy for the prince that was promised. Um, and so I looked it up to get the exact, uh, quote on, uh, westeros.org where they have a lot of, um, they're like, I don't know if you've ever been on that site, but for anybody that hasn't been on that site, it, it is just canon it there's no speculation there's no um com- commentary it is only canon for the books and for the show um and they're really kind of like upfront about that so they're like we're only going to sh- um talk about what is actually there if you want to go to speculation didn't the creators of that web- website also help co-write the uh, the world of ice and fire book as well oh i wouldn't be surprised 
I wouldn't be surprised at, at all. Um, but in this one, they talk about Lightbringer. It says, in ancient books of Asai, it is written that there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour, a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword, and that sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and he who clasps it, it shall be Azor High, come again, and the darkness shall flee before him. So, you know, there's all this speculation about who is Azora High, you know, what is Lightbringer? Is it, um, you know, is it a certain sword? Is it any sword? Is it a sword at all? Right. Is um, it dragons? Is it, is it dragon steel? Is it dragon glass? Right. If that's, if that's the case, then, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of people with Valerian steel swords, one of them being Jon Snow, um, who is also mining dragon glass right now, you know, so... You know, it, it's funny because, you know, you see this red comet and you hear, OK, it means dragons. Yes, that's that's very obvious. But then you get it with this, you know, this light bringer prophecy you get and you see that John is making his um, his ascent into the ranks of the Night Watch by being groomed by the Lord Commander. And then, you you know, all these pieces are they're not even coming to the board yet. You know, it's like they're still being chiseled. And and so all you're left, if, if you're a first time watcher, is you have all these random pieces that you don't know how they go together. And it's so fun to watch them all come together. And then you see this prophecy and you're like, oh, my gosh, I totally understand how they're supposed to fit. And um, mm-hmm. I'm going off on a tangent now. No, it's awesome. But, um, so what's interesting is that I, I just don't think that it's it that that Lightbringer sword, that it, that it's a fiery sword. I just, I, I can't believe it because it looks like it's too easy to light a sword on fire. I mean, Beric Dondarrion does it just to do it, you know? Right. Um, he did it when he fought the Hound. Did it, and um, he was known for doing it in melees at tournaments. Um, the Red Priest with the Flaming Sword, that was like his thing. Right. And he, d- yeah, and he did it at... Um, the Magnificent Seven, the East Watch Seven. Right. <laughs> yep. And uh, and then, you know, Stannis, Stannis pulls the sword out. And if it's supposed to be this, you know, huge moment, he just tosses it in the sand. Right. And and Melisandre knows that this is bullshit at this point. Um, she He pulls the sword out, sticks it in the sand. Everybody takes a knee and she sort of has her head half bowed and there's a moment where she her eyes look flick up and she starts scanning the crowd and she's sort of like sketchily looking at everybody to see how they're reacting and to see if they're like playing into it and i was like oh she's just fucking she's full of it here she's just right watching everybody to make sure that they're falling for her game yeah, Crazy. which, you know, they are. So. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> so anyways, the the rest of this little blurb, it says the bleeding star refers to the comet. The cold breath of darkness is most likely to the others in the approaching winter. The prophecy speaks of the return of Azora High to once again drive back the others. So um, I, I'd say that that's all true and that's all happening right now in the story. So, yeah, definitely. The red comet is the the big marker of that. But that was my that was my number two, actually. So. Oh, cool. I also like the way that the red comet was introduced through the eyes of summer. Right. Isn't that the first shot we saw of it? Yes. Was um, through the eyes of summer. So that was cool. And then we he kind of trots over and looks down into his reflection in the Weirwood pond. 
to make um, sure it's him. Yeah, yeah. And so then we know for sure that it's we're seeing through the eyes of the wolf, which is pretty. That was awesome. We that was our first wolf dream. Um, no, it wasn't because he was having wolf dreams when he woke up. Yeah. Last year, but either way, it was cool. I like those wolf dreams. Those were yeah. Those were the hardest chapters for me to get through. For being honest. Sure. Yeah. Always want to be honest. I love I. People often, you know, have certain chapters. They'll be like, I skip Cersei chapters or I skip. Um, Dorn. Dorn chapter or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I can't skip anything, man. Like I, I'm i always paying attention in chapters for hints about other chapters, um, basically. Oh, I never skipped the chapters. It just. They're the hardest. Me, yeah, I know. It's just a slog. Yeah. I love all the characters and like everything, all like the stuff. I, I must just be a unique case where none of it bores me. Um, hey, that's it. That's all right. Yeah, I that was the it's the only thing that I really couldn't get through when it came to Bran and Warging. And I'm just I never saw a point to it. Oh, you know what I mean? And I guess I just was like, OK, that's enough. Thank you. I don't need 50 pages on this. <laughs> well, here's a point. The Night King has a dragon right now, and we're going to need that Bran he's to warg into very it. nicely into. Yeah, yeah, we're going to need Bran to warg into that shit to uh, <laughs> to save us all potentially. Well, like I said, right? It's all the puzzle pieces finally coming together. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, totally. You're not sure what to do with the puzzle pieces in the beginning. In the beginning. You're like, yeah, I've got this really weirdly shaped puzzle piece, and it doesn't go to any pe- yeah. any part of this puzzle. And, and for I all we throw know, it in the trash. Yeah, for all we know, the dragon's <laughs> just going to burn that that puzzle piece and it's never even going to happen. Uh, that dragon though, that's like, it's like the dragon that's on speed and meth and crack all combined at once. The thing is crazy. So is that it for your number two? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's see. My number two is different Lannisters being confronted about incest and their reactions. So yeah. If, yeah. This is the episode where, you know, Stannis writes the incest letter and tells reveals to everybody that based on Ned's information, oh my God, like Ned got killed and it was, he was so close to, Cersei was so close and Joffrey to, to completely, you know, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Covering up this An information. Um, exposer. Yeah. Like, yeah, they, you know, they thought with the death of Ned, essentially that this information would not get out. But oh oh yeah yeah. But Ned had sent that raven to Stannis, right? So everybody is going to find out at least what Ned and Stannis are saying uh, that Joffrey is a bastard. But it, it it's so it's so funny because it's just they came so close to completely suppressing that information, and just that one little raven is throwing their game into um, disarray essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this rebellion would have never taken place if Stannis didn't have reason to believe that Joffrey was a bastard, essentially, um, you know, and all these other people. Um, at least it wouldn't have played out the way that it did. But so there are people's reactions. We got Jamie, who's still being prisoner, um, held prisoner at Rob's host and uh, starts off with a cool shot of like a watchtower as it sort of pans over his army encampment and you can see the scale of it. It's pretty huge. I've never really paid attention to it much before, mm-hmm. um, but it's pretty impressive and, um, and vast. And so Rob and Jamie are talking and Rob got Stannis' letter. He's learned of the bastard accusations and he accuses Jamie of pushing Bran from the window after Bran caught him with Cersei 
and Jamie has like kind of a funny reaction. He was so upfront with um, with Cat about having pushed Bran, and but he will not admit to the incest. Um, he will not. So he's he's like, do you have proof, or do you want to just gossip like a bunch of fishwives? Which was a pretty funny, um, pretty funny line. And so we, Jamie's reaction to this is just being totally quiet, not playing into it at all, not even acknowledging it essentially and changing the topic, calling Rob a boy and um, doing his best just to not feed into it. Um, so <laughs> Rob, he's like, he's like, oh, sorry, did I insult you, Rob, calling you a boy? And he's like, you insult yourself. You know, you, you've just been defeated by a boy, captured by a boy. Perhaps you'll be killed by a boy. Yeah. And, and um, as he's saying this, Grey Wind is creeping around the edge of the of the cage, and Jamie is my, kind of. I love lo- that dire wolf. <laughs> yeah, the 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 watcher doesn't know exactly what's happening yet. They just see Jamie kind of flick his head over and looking concerned, and then Grey Wind prowls in right under Rob's hand, and he's just poised at his side, waiting for command. And this scene is in- intense for a number of reasons. Um, but one other su- thing that it suggests to me is that much as Bran has his visions and his dreams and his warging with with um, Summer, I feel like Rob has some sort of mental connection with Grey Wind here as the wolf seems so under his control at this point. He just gives him a little squeeze and lets go of his hand and Grey Wind goes right up to Jamie's face and snarls in his face and intimidates him and mm-hmm. and doesn't kill him right so it's like rob is so confident that rob, that gray wind um understands what he wants and won't betray him that he lets him in here with this valuable prisoner whereas you know these like this is <laughs> jamie lannister as a captive is he's, it's like the most valuable prisoner you could possibly have in this situation he's absolutely worth, worth more than joffrey as a prisoner you know what i mean is mm-hmm. every these Taiwan's dreams the like the richest guy, most powerful guy in the Seven Kingdoms, and Jamie is like is his pride essentially. He's the future of Taiwan's dynasty. He's I can't couldn't think of a more valuable hostage. Um, and Rob lets this wolf in here with them, this fucking dire wolf that could just rip his head off. So obviously Rob is really confident in his connection with Grey Wind, um, which is says a lot. I feel like especially when we learn how valuable the Stark kids are when Tyrion is. You know, putting Cersei down about having lost a Stark kid and having killed Ned when they were such valuable hostages. So it just goes to show you how, like, really valuable Jamie is. But well, it even shows you what one boy to the other boy, one boy king versus another boy king, and what they do with their hostages and, right. and their That's maturity levels. Great parallel. Um, yeah, good, good that you pointed that out. I hadn't even thought about it that way. And um, yeah, that's awesome. And. And Joffrey just disposes of his valuable hostages when Rob will let a wolf within in with him, but he knows he's not the wolf isn't gonna kill him. <laughs> so um even faced with imminent death, you know, Jamie will not confess the incest. Um I mean not there's a reason to, really, but it's just interesting his reaction there, just dead silent, nothing. Mm-hmm. And then Cersei is confronted um by Baelish about it. She she finds him in the like right next to that courtyard where she ends up putting the map in season seven. Oh, what a scene. Right? It's what a scene. Love this. The best scene of the episode. Yeah, she notices his mockingbird sigil and 
she's like, oh, you picked your own sigil, didn't you? And he's like, I did. Thank you for noticing. You know, some they people just start talking in riddles to each other. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Cool. Beautiful. And he, he, she mentions his past with history with Lysa and Catelyn and everything and how she knows about who he is and his motivations in an attempt to make sort of a power play against him. And then he brings up the incest and, and uh, mentions how, you know, sometimes feelings can occur with brothers and sisters too. And in prominent families, if the word can get out, you know, yeah, it's bad. And prominent families often forget one simple truth that, like you said, knowledge is power. And she responds, sees him, boom, they grab him. Cut his throat. Knife is instantly at his throat. Wait. Change my mind. I, I Back up three mind. paces. Let him Turn go. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Close your eyes. Yeah, it's so amazing. <laughs> What's interesting, though, is don't you think she showed her hand? I mean, she basically said she she hit a nerve, like little finger hit a nerve with her, you know? That's true. But at the same time, he showed his hand. That was his trump card. She could have had him killed right at that moment. Yeah, how many people have tried to kill Littlefinger over seven seasons? I mean, they've choked him, they've tried to kill him, right. seize him. Yeah. That's awesome. But how about this? Cersei, a woman, she just wanted to tell her guards, cut his throat, right? So that totally foreshadows Littlefinger's throat being cut, actually, mm. six seasons yes. later, five seasons later, at the command of a woman. I love it. Right? So how funny the, is that? Yeah. At the command of Sansa at yeah. that, who, right. you know, who has an, was kind of groomed by Cersei. Yeah, totally groomed by Cersei. Uh, such a close connection with Cersei. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So two totally parallel scenes there, um, which is, I kind of, I, I put that in my note that it, in my notes that it totally foreshadows his actual death in this scene. But um we, we didn't mention that she, you know, sees him, cut his throat, stop, wait, I've changed my mind, let him go, take three steps back, turn around, close your eyes. Power is power. Oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so good. And he's just like, ha, ah. <laughs> oh, He man. probably had to go and change his pants after that. Yeah, he hopefully he was wearing his brown pants. Um, the people are <laughs> always grabbing him by the throat. You know, his throat is often the target. Uh, because of the words that come out of his throat. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's awesome. Ned grabbed him by the throat. John grabbed him by the throat. Cersei told people to cut his throat. Sansa t- had Arya cut his throat. Oh, man. Awesome. It's great. Perfect. Yeah, it's beautiful. He's the worst. He's the worst and the best. Yeah, and then yeah, so and then Joffrey. Yeah, then Joffrey is next confronted about the bastardhood. Um, He tells his mom was he's remodeling the throne room to fit the style of a conqueror, because he you know feels like because he's such a conqueror. Um, (laughs) She tells him that he's heard a disgusting, disgusting lie about Uncle Jamie and you, mommy, (laughs) and she's. she denies it, obviously, saying that Stannis is just trying to weaken his claim to the throne. He's like, my claim to the throne. It's not a claim. Yeah. I, I, I am the king. I am king. I'm the king. So he continues to ask, father had other children besides me and Tommen and Marcella. And she's like, what are you asking? Um, and I've never, this line seems to have slipped by me in all my watchings of this show. Like so many times, it's like the first time I ever really heard him ask this. Um, asking about the bastards, which he then orders to be executed, um, and we get being killed in the same episode. Um, so that stuck out to me that 
obviously it's Joffrey um, who has arranged for this. Um, well, he must know. He must know that 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 it's the truth. Yeah, you know, well, at least, and if it's if it's not the truth, that at worst case, that somebody could still claim it's the truth and try to elevate a bastard. Um, right. So he's eliminating his competition. And um, yeah, Tyrion ends up accusing um, Cersei. Yeah, of but he doesn't kill Marcella and Tommen. Right. Yeah, that's a good, good point. Um, right. So he must know that he's not a Baratheon. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder. Uh, I mean, it, he's blonde as hell, right? And all those other bastards had black hair. I noticed. Um, he's got a touch of the cray. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's got a, a touch. He's slightly touched. Um, oh my gosh, he's in, he's insanity reborn. He's just crazy. Yeah. So Cersei asks, what are you asking? And he's like, I'm asking if he fucked other women bef- when he got tired of you. When he got tired of you. Yeah. He probably has bastards running all around this. Boom, she slaps the fuck gosh, out of him. Like Beavis and Butthead. Asshole. Don't make me kick your ass, Beavis. <laughs> you know? And, I, uh, I know. And so, and that's yeah, and that's when Cersei's kind of put in her place by her own son. Yep, and that's the moment of terror we talked about. And uh, so, basically, it turns out that Joffrey's reaction to having been learning, learn, having learned about the incest and bastardhood potential, potential, his reaction is to order the murder of all the other bastards. So <sighs> we, so we get Roz giving the moaning lessons now, and Baelish's stead in the whorehouse. And the gold cloaks rush in and find the the whore who uh, the poor poor you know lovely whore that um, Ned had found and was talking with about the baby who's like you know Robert was always so good to me and tell him that she's doing so well else. I haven't been with anybody else and all that and uh, and then Janice Slint comes in and orders her child to be stabbed I just, yeah that I was hate rough. Janice Slint. Uh, and I fucking hate Joffrey. They're yeah, inexcusable. I, it's the whole last five minutes of this episode, I watched in a pillow. I just I couldn't. Yeah. I knew what was happening. I there's some stuff that I just can't see Do again, with, yeah. and that's one of them. Yeah, I don't blame you. My uh, my notes ended with fucking Joffrey. I think at that part. Um, what did I? What did I write? Probably nothing because I was mad. Yeah, I did had... not watch again. Listening was enough. <laughs> I just hate Jano Slint. Seriously, that's it's word for word. <laughs> yeah. I I did a uh, like a frowning emoji with the angry eyebrows using the uh, the greater than symbol. Yeah, oh, the angry ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they continue to search the city and murder a bunch of bastards, and they all have jet black hair, um, just like Gendry. And then it's so revealed. So you see Gendry and Arya. Yep. the The blacksmith is being interrogated, and it's revealed that he has shipped up shipped Gendry up to the north with the Night's Watch, and that's where we end. Is panning out with an ominous shot of the Night's Watch heading north with Gendry and Arya and the Bull Helm. Which is pretty, uh, pretty awesome helm. I'm wondering. Yeah, well, how it he's would... very good with uh, with steel. Yeah, he can <laughs> he can swing a hammer, <laughs> as he yes, told he Hot can. Pie last episode for that. Yeah, <laughs> when I swing this hammer, it makes the anvil sing. It's one of the things I always wish that they kept from the books was when Hot Pie was killing someone. He's like Hot Pie, Hot Pie, Hot Pie. Like he just kept repeating Hot Pie as he oh, stabbed man. people or killed them. That's so. Oh, like. I just uh, 
Right, like sort of the like when they're in a battle, like you're talking about the battle at that yeah, farm yeah, yeah. place when Arya, Arya frees Jack and Hagar and Biter right. and Rorge, Rorg, right? Yeah, because there it's like a Westerosi thing is like when you're charging into battle, you shout who you're representing, right? So it's like <laughs> Winterfell, you know? pie. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, yeah. So Arya's like Winterfell, and he's like hot pie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Total Hodor it's moment. So funny. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah, he is. He's like an intelligent Hodor. Yeah. I love Hot Pie, man. Uh, yeah. It's so funny. So, yeah, that pretty much sums up my number two is just the reactions of the different Lannisters to uh, learning of the bastardhood. Jamie keeps his mouth shut. Cersei freaks out and um, exerts power over her accuser. And Joffrey orders the assassination of any potential bastards. About, we must have the same one left over. No, definitely not this time. D- oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So you can go <laughs> ahead with your number one. <laughs> I, I'm more. I'm like super intrigued by yours, but yeah, mine was uh, Rob's peace demands. Oh yes, this is definitely very important. Yeah. So you know, one of my one one of um, my favorite parts of of this whole exchange, you know, during, during this scene is when he says, I don't need a servant to do my beheading yes. for me. Yes. It's just. Daddy ev- taught him better it, than that. But it's such an ending to an already very epic speech by him. Right. Um, you know, he's, he's sat there and he goes, I want you to, he's, he's laying out his demands as, you know, we want to be a free North and and we don't want to be, you know, subject to anybody, anybody in King's Landing. And, you know, you're going to bring back the bones of my father, the bones of his people. You're going to give me my sisters. You're going to, you know, he's just like laying it all out. And then he's like, oh, and by the way, Cersei (laughs) and Joffrey, yeah, Yeah. you guys are going to leave King's Landing and you're going to admit that you guys are all a bunch of fakes. (laughs) And and like the only thing that somebody can say during that point is the king in the north. (laughs) They can't even handle what they're hearing. They're just just expelling words. King in the north. (laughs) And then he said, and then he just, and then he lays it out. I don't need anybody to do my beheading for me. Yeah, um, you'll rel- relinquish your claim to the domain of the North. Oh, oh man. such a great speech, yeah, you know? That cause, moment, I was, my jaw just drops. Like, what? Because he's a man now. He's not the boy king. And, you know, he's won three victories and he's been there for his people and he's, you know, taking back what's his and, right. and he's kicking ass and taking names three victories is better than three defeats <laughs> as he tells jamie right three three victories yeah, doesn't i mean make he's you a overconfident in all the wrong ways but i still love it yeah you know yeah um what do you think about the casting here for for king rob richard madden oh i think he was fantastic nice did you ever I, see him play um what is it? Prince Charming or whatever? And uh... <laughs> No, no, I never <laughs> saw the Cinderella movie. I need to see it, though. My daughter keeps asking me if, if we're going to see it. And uh, and the only reason why I really want to see it is because I want to see Richard Madden in it. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, a couple of questions always come to mind when it comes to Rob, because as as wonderful as everything that he does is he's still, he's doing little things wrong. You know, if he wanted to combine armies, 
I feel like he should have gone to Stannis because Rob's just like, look, right, man, exactly. I, look, you, you do what you do and I'll do what I do and we'll be fine, but let's at least combine what we're doing. Cause he is the legit, he is the legitimate King. If he really believes that. Right. Yeah. And you know, why go to Renly? Renly is a, he's a phony. He's a fake. We, everybody knows it. Like he's the, just, he's playing King. The only reason I can imagine that he would go to Renly here instead of Stannis is just that he knows that Stannis will never relinquish the North. He's thinking that, well, Renly might be willing to, in exchange for having the North back his claim to the throne, he may be willing to, in exchange for that, give us the North um, as long as he ends up on the throne himself. So that that's my only like guess as to why um, he did that. But I think that Ned would have not been happy about this, about choosing Renly like that. Sure. Yeah, I just that was that was a big big mistake. And sending his mom when his mom just wanted to go back to Winterfell, where you know, I mean, his home is being led by like a six year old right now. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, 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 six year old and so an old I, man. Right, and and then he's like, and then Theon's like, my father will listen to me, and Rob's like, yeah, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Go oh, over right. there. That's another. Like, none the, of this is. None yeah. of this is good. That's another great point. Is that. The, his his whole undoing is here with Theon, essentially. I think that there is something in the books where Ned had – one of the last things he had done when he sent Catelyn away from King's Landing was telling her to keep the, the Greyjoy boy close um, and a couple other things. And she never relayed that message to Rob. Um, and so, yeah, that I, I don't think that was included in the show, but I remember there being something about that. Yeah, it was just, you know, it just the whole thing. I don't know. It's just he's so epic in at being a leader. And you know that he will he will do what needs to be done. But he's putting his he's putting a lot of trust into the wrong people. Um, You know, Theon, Theon being number one. Yeah. Walder Frey. um, Right. Yeah, totally. And then, uh, you know, at the at the very end, um, not the very end of Rob, but one of the lines that Catelyn says to to Rob before she leaves is we will all be together again soon, I promise. And it's just so sad because they're both now together, but they're not with us. Right. So (laughs) she was she was saying the truth, but it's a little sad. Yeah. Um, But. To go back to just his peace demands, I just, um, I just love the strength and the growth in Rob um, so quickly. You know, he really he took on being um, quicker the than Lord John. Of, well, yeah, <laughs> John. John had some real good thinking to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so that was my yeah. That's my last one. My nice. Number one. That was a good one. Now I want to hear yours. Okay. This is from way out of left field. Um, Yay. My number one is religious and occult symbolism in this episode. Yeah. No, we wouldn't have had the same one. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just noticed a few things which I thought were pretty cool. Um, We have Danny leading the Dothraki through the Red Waste, which reminded me of Moses leading the Jews through the desert. Um, Mm Mm-hmm talk about how their biggest enemy at this point was starvation and how can you know she promised that she'd um 
make their enemies die screaming, but how can you how can you make starvation scream? Um, which reminded me again of Moses, who had this manna device that that he would he used to feed the Jews, I guess, in this voyage. Yep, he did. Um, yeah, which is pretty interesting. They're following the comet in the sky, which made me think of the wise men following the star. Um, there's a lot of light and dark as well, which is like symbolizes duality and in the occult and stuff like that. So we they're in the desert surrounded by sunlight and then it goes next to when God and Satan is light and dark as well. Right. Yeah. And um, and so we have the the light side of that equation with with um, Daenerys representing the the Messiah and whatnot. And then it transitions to the dark side with Melisandre, who, like Lucifer, is rebelling against the reigning God. Mm. Um, we have her talking about a sword called Lightbringer, which Lucifer literally translates as Lightbringer. Um, so I thought that was interesting. We had, I never knew that. Yeah, Lucifer means bringer of light. So interesting. technically That's interesting. the Statue of Liberty is a Lucifer. Um, it's Yeah, yeah. So there's that. Um, we had the line... Which, which came from Osha talking to Bran, where she says, "Stars don't fall for men." Red comet means one thing, boy. Dragons. Dragons. And uh, Lucifer was referred to as a falling star, as well. And um, if the if the falling star means dragons, then that makes sense as well, because Lucifer is often uh, related to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. You know, mm-hmm. providing yep. sacred knowledge. Um, so um, the dragons with are temptation. the serpents. You know, so we got the fallen star being associated with dragons and serpents or reptiles. Um, so, yeah, there's just a lot of religious symbolism in this episode, which I noticed uh, this time around, which I thought was pretty fun. And, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And how about any, you got anything else to play off that? Now that we're talking about it, no, I I do like I I like where you're going with it, and I, I that there, there's probably a lot of um, intention from George R R Martin. Oh, absolutely, um, with doing that, which uh, in our house we call him Grim. Oh, gr- Grim, G R R M. Right, I've heard him people call him kind of sounds like Grim. <laughs> yeah, Grims. <laughs> we call him Grim in this house. Nice, <laughs> stupid Grim. Oh, so here's an interesting question. So if uh, if Melisandre represents Lucifer and like the order of um, like Luciferianism or whatever, then if John is revived by R'hllor, could that signify um, some sort of dark future for John? No. No? <laughs> or maybe they consider Lucifer to be the good guy, um, which, you know, the Luciferians would would uh sympathize with that um yeah i don't know i think that yeah i think that anything is i i I think that that's a really good question i was i was saying no just because i refuse to to believe believe that that john is anything other than 100 percent good right right. (laughs) considering the the universe and the show that we are talking about anything is possible um, I would love to see John go full dark side. No, that'd be, stop. That'd be amazing. Imagine him <laughs> just like as a robot for the Night King. <laughs> yeah, just that like would, that with would, ice that growing would, off of his face and stuff. Do you understand the hearts that would break? 
all over this world. Yeah, but like, do you like understand the metal songs that would be written as a consequence? It'd <laughs> <laughs> be so awesome. <laughs> I mean, it'd be horrifying. You and I are looking at this from two completely different points of view. <laughs> yeah. The whole Venus and Mars thing. Right? <laughs> That's what um, makes it good, though. Light and dark, like, just like we were talking about. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know what? I mean, you you bring up very, very interesting questions that, in all honesty, I, I would love to just sit and marinate on instead of just um, answering it off the cuff, to tell you the truth. Sure. Um, we can circle back to it. Yeah, we'll, ta- Since yeah, we'll I'm talk here about now, it more in the future. We can circle back to it. <laughs> I honestly, I just like, I watched the episode an hour before recording and picked up on a few things. So I didn't really have time to do much research and like back the uh, the parallels or metaphors here by further research. But I did pick up on at least enough that um, I thought it was worth mentioning. And the, the religious implications could have um, character implications to uh you know the people involved like Danny being associated with the Messiah um Melisandre being associated with the the fallen angels and whatnot so we'll just mm-hmm. have to see how those extrapolate well, in the end game yeah i mean there's a lot of people that think that you know John is the Messiah in this story as well right and that's that's the interesting thing too is that there's like a divide because he was brought by darkness yeah, Although, that, you know, the Lord of Light is, you know, R'hllor and, you know, it, it could be argued that, that, you know, R'hllor is actually the one that is making all of the good things happen. And that is the driving force of that, even though it looks like it's in darkness. Right. It's the one, it's the one thing that's bringing out the light. It's the one thing that's doing anything. And that's what makes you know? it so, so interesting too, is because it sort of parallels the, the, the real life interpretations of the character of Lucifer. Like there are some people who consider Lucifer like a, like a horrible fallen angel who betrayed the God of creation and uh, they equate him with Satan um, essentially. And then there's Mm -hmm. other factions of people who believe that Lucifer is the champion, that God was the oppressor enslaving humanity and keeping them um, intelligent or uh, without information. And that Lucifer freed them by giving them the, the knowledge, you know, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge and sparking their minds. Um, So there's like a total debate on what's good, what's evil. And it, sort of translates into the way that the symbology is um, is presented on the TV show and there's an honest debate of the same type of thing. Like, is R'hllor good? Is he bad? He burns, like, little children and stuff, you know, his followers do, but he revived Jon Snow, you know what I mean? So... Yeah, well, you That's can crazy. say the same thing for God too. I mean, people do a lot of a lot of heinous things in the name of in, in the name of God, but they also do a lot of really great things in the name of God, right? right? So you you don't really know where you're coming with that because God is very angry and very vengeful, and he he can be oppressive, but he also pushes you to learn and trust, and you know it. So it you can make arguments really for both sides, yeah. light and dark. So it will be interesting to see where the pieces uh, fall. Yeah. eventually. And then it's hard to blame followers for doing things in, in God's name, you could say, because God gave them free will. So, right. You know, it's not God doing it. Stannis it's, didn't it's have to burn his daughter. He right. Did not have to do that. Yeah. But he did it. And Abraham didn't have to cut his son in half. Uh, 
parallel sort of thing right there, right? Um, but yeah, so I just thought that was cool. A lot of lots of religious parallels and symbology Absolutely. in this episode and series as a whole. So we'll have to delve more into that in the future. Yeah, that that's a conversation that can go on forever, I think. Yeah, and it can be expanded in a number of different directions with mm-hmm. the uh, the Norse mythology that's overlaid over the whole series or um, astronomical stuff. We can have a special stuff. section. Yeah, they would kind of a special section, light and dark section by Kristen and Duncan. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can add that for sure. Um, I will be playing light. Duncan will be playing darkness. Dark. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff overlaid. We got what's his face? Uh, Tyrion is has shares remarkable similarities to a, a Chinese twisted monkey demon god called um, Sun Wukong. We've got Jon Snow paralleling Mithra. We've got um, Blood Raven paralleling Loki. Uh, there's like there's so many things like this all throughout the series that could be analyzed. I don't think that I don't think that people are going to stop analyzing this this series for hundreds of years before it's all even figured out. No, I mean, look at Lord of the Rings. I mean, the same thing happens with them with with that universe. So. Yeah, it's called writing in like the great the grand tradition. I call it is when you um, mm-hmm. or they call it is when you like overlay your writings with um, encrypted history and mythology and stuff like that. That's all built into it. It's pretty cool. It's wonderful. Yeah. So that that's wraps up my number one. Uh, any other notes here? Anything you want to talk about? Oh, you know what? I think that we have really. I think we've really covered it all. I, is this the first time that we hear about Mance? I think I, I, I believe it is. Yeah. Okay. That was my that was my only question mark that I had on here. I couldn't remember if we had heard about him in the first season. I didn't think so, but um, but yeah. Other than that, we talked about Theon. Um. Yeah, lots of good little uh, good little lines in this. You know, loyal service means telling hard truths. Yep. You want to lead one day, learn to follow. Power is power. Knowledge is power. So I just, everything is, we will soon all be together again, I promise. Oh, Yeah. So um, I did want to say that if anybody did want to read these chapters, um, I don't know if anybody has any interest in the book, but I always look at what chapters they go over. And for this episode in Clash of Kings, it's the prologue, chapter 2, 3, 4, 7, 10, 12, 23, and 33. Awesome. Thanks for doing that. That's a really good idea. Yeah. And yeah, I definitely remember the uh, the prologue in the books is of book two is when we... The death scene of the maester. Yeah, when Crescent tries to poison Melisandre, that always sticks mm-hmm. out to me as two new characters that you're experiencing in that prologue. <laughs> it's really intense. Well, and it's so different from what you had just read. And you're, yeah. and you're reading this going, what the fuck is happening right yeah, now? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Pretty Yeah, it's a good awesome. chapter. I, I highly recommend reading the prologue of Clash of Kings. All right, guys, stick with us. We'll be right back after a short break. with news about Game of Thrones. Our first article is from Time. An Iranian man is charged with hacking HBO and stealing Game of Thrones episodes. U.S. prosecutors have charged an Iranian national with hacking into cable TV network HBO and stealing episodes and plot summaries for unaired programs, including Game of Thrones, then threatening to release the data unless he was paid $6 million. Bezad Mezri, also known as Skot Vashat, 
was charged with the hack in a sealed indictment that was released on Tuesday by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. A spokeswoman with the U.S. Attorney's Office said Mesri had not been arrested and declined, declined to comment on the suspect's whereabouts. <laughs> the uh, indictment described Mesri as a, quote, self-professed expert in hacking who had worked on behalf of Iran's military to attack military systems, nuclear software systems, and Israeli infrastructure. It also alleged that he helped an Iranian hacking group, Turk Black Hat, Black Hat Security Team, deface um, hundreds of websites in the U.S. and other countries. The cyber attack surfaced over the summer as HBO was running a new season of Game of Thrones and as the cable network's parent Time Warner Inc. sought regulatory approval to sell itself to AT&T Inc. in an $85.4 billion deal announced in October. 2016. The indictment charges Mesri with hacking into HBO from May to August and stealing unaired episodes of programs including Ballers, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and The Deuce. Mesri also stole scripts and plot summaries for Game of Thrones, according to the indictment. It said he obtained credentials that HBO, employee, HBO employees used to access the network, then used those accounts to steal data from the company's servers from May to August of this year. He demanded up to up to $6 million to keep the data secret in extortion emails to HBO staff, some of which ended with photos of Night King, a menacing zombie villain from Game of Thrones, according to the indictment. <laughs> Reuters was unable to, re to reach Mesri for comment. Prosecutors charged Mesri with computer fraud, wire fraud, extortion, and identity theft. HBO spokesman Jeff Cusson declined to comment on the incident. Um, as... Quote, as far as the criminal case is concerned, we prefer to leave any comments to the U.S. Attorney's Office, he said in an email. He declined to say if the company's investigation into the breach was complete or how much the incident had cost the cable network. Gosh, this is I, I remember when this has this was this was such a ballsy thing. Yeah, yeah. he did. Definitely chose the right show. That's for sure. Oh, they would have been like, oh, the deuce? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> no we problem. We don't give a fuck about the deuce. You know what? You let us know what people think of it, too. Will you? Please? <laughs> That's so funny. Have you seen that show? I want to. I just don't have the time. Yeah, have same. you? No, not yet. I, I will, though. I like, um, you know, the cast. A lot of really, James good, Franco. really good actors in that, I think. Yeah, Franco. He's great. I want to see that new movie now with him. When he plays that oh. weirdo in Cali. Not the Minuteman thing. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think so. It's a, it's a true story about this guy who shows up to Hollywood and tries to get movies. And he has a very weird accent and oh, sucks at I acting. I haven't heard of that. I suck at movies, man. I do. I People are like, oh, have you seen this? I'm like, no. Yeah. I watch television. Same here. I, yeah, I'm not really into movies. <laughs> I prefer the, the format of TV where you get I like binge watching tons television. of hours of stuff. Yep. Me too. Yeah. I, I don't want two hours of a world. I want a hundred. Exactly. It's just like a waste of time where you get an hour and a half and then it's done forever. I totally I mean, agree with there's you. There's certain <laughs> stories which are worth, you know, hearing or whatever, but there, there's so much more drawing me to the TV. Right. Than, totally. Know, you're my entertainment soulmate, man. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Uh, the next item is an article by Mashable. Amelia Clark isn't here for your Game of Thrones nudity shaming. If you've got a problem with the nudity and sex scenes in Game of Thrones, don't waste your time taking it up with Amelia Clark. Our beloved Daenerys Targaryen has landed the latest cover of Harper's Bazaar, and in the accompanying feature, she discusses everything from finding love to Brexit. If she like needs help finding bit. love, uh, you can give her my number, just to, just to say. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way, but I'll let her know. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, no no worries, dude. I'm here for you. <laughs> but the best bit comes with a little rant she goes on about her hit HBO show and the squabble she's picked over the years with some viewers. I'm starting to get really annoyed about this stuff now because people say, oh, yeah, and all the porn sites went down when Game of Thrones came back on. I'm like, The Handmaid's Tale? I fucking love that show, and I cried when it ended because I couldn't handle not seeing it, <laughs> she said to the magazine. And that is all sex and nudity. There are so many shows centered around this, and this very true fact that people reproduce, she explained. People fuck for pleasure. It's part of life. Oh. You heard it here first, folks. It's a part of life. You know what? I'm glad that she brought that up. I, I'm glad because she gets a lot of hell. I mean, people say, oh, she's she's gained so much weight and is she going to be naked? And oh, there's there's Daenerys again. What? Naked gained or weight? Whatever. Yeah. Uh, when was it? It was like a couple seasons ago. There was, I remember reading this article about the fact that she wasn't naked because um, she had gained too much weight or something. And like she had all this fat in her arms or something. And I just thought it was just disgusting because I'm like, first of all, we don't put each other down. Like as a woman, I don't put another woman down, especially if it is if it's a weight issue. I've had my own struggles with weight and I know how hard it is. Even guys. She's fucking beautiful. She's perfect. You know? Yeah. You don't you just don't talk about that like. No, and especially in such a hateful way. And then, you know, I saw, um, and then I read another article and I, I can try and bring it up or if somebody wants to post it to the site or whatever, that's fine. But, you know, she talked about her contract and it was basically, look, I don't want to be naked just to be naked. If I'm going to be naked, I want it to mean something. Right. And so, so that's she, why. Yeah. She legit did the scene where she burned down the, uh, the Dosh Colleen, right? Yes. That was right. her, that was her body and she did it and people were like, oh, looks like it's not, it's what all of a sudden not in your contract again. And it's like, no, it was always in her contract. She just didn't want to be naked just to be naked gratuitously yeah and i think that's okay it's okay for us to protect our bodies once in a while but we also understand that if you're telling a story and you're an actor that's what you're doing that's your job yeah so yeah it's at certain times it is very important for plot like this is a supernatural occurrence with the with her essentially burning down the Dosh Colleen and everything. So it makes sense. Yeah, she sense can't that, come out in her clothes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like her, man. She seems really cool. I love her. Every article of her is awesome. Every interview. She's rad. Her Rastafarian Targaryen. Oh <laughs> my great. god. I, I need to look that up. It sounds familiar. Have you not seen it? It sounds familiar, but I can't. It's remember the it cold exactly. when Coldplay did Game of Thrones the musical. Oh my god! I don't oh even, my gosh, Duncan! I'm put, no, I'm sending this to you tonight. It's 12 minutes of pure glory. It's the best thing I've ever. It's it's Tyrion. It's Peter Dinklage, and he's like singing a song like "I'm still alive." Everybody around me is dead. You know. Oh. John Snow. Kit Harrington sings "Wildling" to Ygritte. Oh. 
He's like, wildling, <laughs> you make my heart say It's awesome. That's funny. <laughs> you so, have to know. Yeah, send that to me, please. I will. Okay, go. Our next item is an article by Evening Standard. A British cameraman who worked on Game of Thrones and The Theory of Everything has unfortunately died while filming scenes for a new BBC and Netflix drama in Ghana. Mark Milsom, a married father of one, was in the African country working on The Forgiving Earth when he was killed on Saturday night. The 54-year-old had credits to his name, which include blockbusters Saving Private Ryan and The Theory of Everything. His agent, Sarah Prince, said he worked as a cameraman for years, adding he was a well-respected, lovely guy, very talented. There's been an outpouring of grief from people who knew him in this industry. He also grew up within it because his father was a renowned cinematographer. He was a gentle gentleman and loved by everybody, incredibly generous with his time and talent and his warmth. He worked with very big stars, very big directors, and he was very humble in all aspects. He was the antithesis of the raging egos you hear about in the industry. She said an investigation into the circumstances surrounding his death is now underway, with more details expected to emerge over the coming days. Obviously, a catastrophic mistake was made, which resulted in Mark's death. It should never, ever have happened in this day and age, Miss Prince added. A spokeswoman or spokesman for the BBC extended their thoughts to Miss, Mr. Milsom's family and friends in the wake of his death. He added... We are deeply shocked and saddened to hear this terrible news. Mark Milsom was hugely talented and a much respected colleague. It sounds like something bad went down. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the first time hearing of it. it. Sounds horrible. Well, just that the catastrophic mistake yeah. never ever should have happened. In this that, day and age, that's, like, what happened? That's anger. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. It's, Mm, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Rest in peace, Mr. Mr. Milsom. Ditto. Um, <clears throat> our next um, item is an article by Entertainment Weekly. Game of Thrones finally earns its first Grammy nomination. What? Woo! So, so, so over-deserved. Like, un- um, over, overdue. <laughs> yeah. So overdue. Winter has finally come for the Recording Academy. Among the nominees announced for the 2018 Grammy Awards is a milestone for Game of Thrones. The HBO fantasy series scored its very first Grammy nomination for composer Raymond Dewadi. Did I say that right? Ramin Javadi. Thank you. Ramin Javadi. I don't, I, 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 I'm terrible at pronouncing. Well, you'd never guess based on the spelling, but I know because I'm a musician and he went to my college and everything like that. So I've like, you know, know a bit about him and whatnot. He's he's a great, then you should be reading this one. No, it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. The music of Westeros is one of five nominees in the category of best score soundtrack for visual media, along with Johan Johansson. For Arrival, Hans Zimmer for Dunkirk, Justin Hurwitz for La La Land, and Benjamin Walfish, Pharrell Williams, and Hans Zimmer's Hans Zimmer, golly, for <laughs> Hidden Figures. The Grammy nod, however, isn't a first for Jawadi, who received a Grammy nomination in twenty in two thousand nine for his work on Iron Man. While Game of Thrones continues to be a major awards contender at the Emmys, except this past year for production reasons, boo, Jawadi (laughs) earned only a Creative Arts Emmy nomination for Outstanding Music Composition for the Season 4 episode, The Mountain and the Viper. He earned other Emmy noms for scoring Westworld, Prison Break, and Flash Forward. Really? 
That's interesting. He's great. The big season seven finale of Game of Thrones, which marked a union of fire and ice to be as cryptic and non-spoilery as possible. Yeah. Uh huh. Jawadi said this was intended to be its own thing. The trick with this theme, he explained to EW, is that it really had to be a love theme. But when we played it in earlier episodes, you don't want to give away the love too soon. So it had to be a theme that could be a little bit mysterious, a little moody, (laughs) and you could play it darker at times. I know everybody was expecting them to get together, but we really had to be able to do this slowly. That was the most important thing for me. Also coming off Composing the music for The Mountain Between Us, Jawadi Wolf's next score, Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time. That's so cool. I really hope that um, Mr. Jawadi is, you know, he wins that Grammy. That'd be great. He's just an immensely talented uh, musician. If you guys, I know I've mentioned it before in the podcast, but if anybody has a chance, I highly recommend going back and listening to episodes of the podcast called Podcast Winterfell where mm-hmm. uh, their host um, has this segment called Clef Notes, where he covers the, the music of Ramin Javadi and breaks it down in detail and oh, shows you how he, he'll change one note here to and to change the emotion of this scene. Well, the you know the Stark theme will be playing triumphantly as Rob rides back from battle, or have mm-hmm. a couple notes changed to be sad as Ned is about to be beheaded. You know, are like yeah. little things that he does with the music that can have massive, cha- you know, changes for the way we perceive it and the way that he develops. Well, I mean, you can and, even talk about yeah, the reigns of Castamere with you know right. the way like that you it's mentioned it today. Used. <laughs> yeah, right. Tyrion whistling it kind of happily <laughs> in a jovial manner, and you're like, oh, that's a cute little tune. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I. You know. I'm. I'm glad for this. I. I always get happy when people that finally deserve, you know, they get what they deserve. Like Tatiana Masley for, um, Maslani, yes. For, um, see, for I told Black. you, I'm very bad at pronouncing names Yeah, for orphan black or, you know, I'm still waiting for Shh. Melissa McBride to get nominated for something, right? Just something major. I got and, s- and it, I got to say real quick about Tatiana Maslany and Orphan Black. Like nobody has done what she's done on that TV show, playing like 14 characters, 12 characters in a and season. And how many years did it take for yeah. her to finally get recognized? It's a, it was a joke. Um, yeah. It was like, it's not even a joke. She, like one of those years, she was up for best supporting or best uh, female actress on, on a series, right? On a drama series. And it was her in the category and Brienne of Tarth. Not that I think Gwendolyn Christie is a great Gwendolyn actress. Christie. She's amazing. And Brand of Tarth is great. But we're talking about a character that had like combined screen time for this season of like 10, 15 minutes mm-hmm. compared to Tatiana Maslany with the combined screen time uh, for when you tally up her actors for like, <laughs> you know, like 10, 15 hours at mm-hmm. least. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the what she's accomplished on this TV show is just incredible. Having being able to like say that anybody else on TV for that year had any competition to her was just ridiculous, like just impossible. Um, So finally she won her Emmy that she needed years ago on like season three of of Orphan Black. Um, And and she was beat by Viola Davis one year for her performance in, um, in How to Get Away with Murder. And that's the only other one that I like was semi okay with 
beating Tatiana I've never Maslany seen that show. just because Viola Davis's performance was so strong on the first season of How to Get Away with Murder. Um, Everything she does is perfect. It. Yeah, it's How to Get Away with Murder. She like really like puts herself out there. It's is that a good show? Yeah, really good. At least season one. I haven't. Um, caught, I'm not caught up with it, but season one was awesome. Yeah, big time. Okay, I, that's the only one I haven't seen of Shondaland. Uh, of what? Shondaland, Shonda Rhimes. Uh, How to Get Away with Murder is also uh, uh, the same writer who does um, uh, Scandal and Grey's Anatomy. Oh, all right. Cool. Shonda Land is her production company. Anyways, (laughs) I just revealed a lot about myself. (laughs) (laughs) She's decloaked. Fire at will. We'll be right back with Raven's Calls. All right. Johnny Stitches says, well struck, dog, right after the hound tears that dude up while wearing that badass helmet. <laughs> what up, Johnny? Yeah, I love that line, too. I thought that was really funny. And that helmet is badass, dude. Thanks for writing in, man. Lainey Mycel. I like that. Uh, maybe with my kiddos going back to school, I can finally get a chance to get back into the rewatch. Yes, Lainey, please do that. Otherwise, we're going to start calling you lazy, myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so you <yeah>, better. <laughs> In weeks from now, when she finally gets caught up, she'll hear that. <laughs> Hi, Lainey. Yeah, right. Exactly. She'll be like, wow, I really, I hate you a lot. <laughs> Alicia, um... Stout says, what I loved about this episode was that it was full of new introductions. Sir Davos, Stannis, Melisandre, Craster, and so much more to come this season. Egret! In parentheses with the exclamation points. Sansa starts to figure out, albeit slowly, how how to start playing this game with Joffrey. And I love how both the Hound and Tyrion come to her defense in the first scene, showing their softer side for her. Side note, I'd like to slap Joffrey upside the head through my TV. Please? With a Do it. <laughs> an emotional little emoji face there. Do it all. All the time. Yeah. Observation. Funny how after watching the entire series a few times, you start to realize how much the song The Reigns of Castamere is played during certain episodes. It was Alicia that I was referencing earlier when uh, I yes. mentioned this. I.e. Tyrion is whistling it as he enters the room with a small council. I love his return along with his humor. Such a drastic change with the seasons to come. Um, and as he put uh, and he put that bitch Cersei in her place. Booyah. Booyah. <laughs> what ex- I wanted to do it too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Booyah, Grandma. Me and you. Uh, wasn't that from a Banjo-Kazooie commercial or something? Or Crash Bandicoot? What exactly does that red comet in the sky mean in this ep lots of rumors are told by osha but most likely dragons yes would love your insight on this duncan and perhaps an explanation from the books you got it press rewind girlfriend yeah and yeah the the books are the books are we get pretty much the same amount of explanation i think um not a lot different in the books in terms of what we know Mm -hmm. about that just various interpretations by various people uh so yeah pretty much the same experience on the show Ah, Craster and his many wives shudder. Mm. What an asshat, and could he be any creepier? <laughs> Ick factor galore. And hey, don't talk to my Jon Snow like that, although he All I'm is saying. pretty. <laughs> mm. <laughs> With a laughing uh, emoji there. Who else thought 
when the maester died while trying to poison Stannis that he died with the same poison Alaria had used. Uh, hey, girl, is that a smiley waving emoji there? Thought, I don't know. I thought, I thought. Oh, she did. She's saying me. I did. Oh, I did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, thought poison was a woman's weapon. A women's weapon. <laughs> Sometimes it is. Yeah, women and maesters. Um, that full-on explanation from Rob to Jamie about Joffrey being his bastard son looked like he just got punched in the gut, yet he still think, still talks smug like a little boy. Prove it! <laughs> Funny how back when this season aired, I didn't like Jamie much, but I love Jamie now, and it will be sad when and if his character ever dies. Love it all and love the podcast. Hashtag power is power. Lady Alicia. Um, Thanks, Alicia. Yeah, and I think she meant when uh, the maester was trying to poison Melisandre there. Um, yeah. All right, Lara Willie Swink. Uh, hello, Lara. Hello. A couple, a couple of things that I noticed that I missed on my first watch. Davos mentions to Stannis that not only the Tyrells but Randall Tarly is aligned with Renly Baratheon. Hmm, funny. Right. I would have pegged old hard ass Tarly as a Stannis man. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And after Littlefinger and Cersei's confrontation, we see one of Varys's little birds. That's right. Oh, my gosh. I said the same thing last night. I said, oh, there's a little bird. A little bird saw that entire thing. Um, amazing to go back and see those secrets wow, of the I show didn't even sprinkled in that. throughout the seasons. Yeah, the little bird, the little kid was um, scrubbing the floor. And it, it, it the as uh, Cersei walked away and Littlefinger was trying to clean up the urine around him, it showed showed the little bird scrubbing the floor. Like the shot was actually from the the kid and the kid's like super fuzzy because it's uh, focused on uh, Littlefinger in the distance. That's crazy. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. That's That's totally true. Good job, Laura. Nice catch, Laura. That's awesome. Also, I'm keeping an eye on the John and Danny parallels. In this episode, as Daenerys rides through the the dry waste of the Great Grass Sea, John is riding into the frozen waste behind the wall. Yay! Oh, you're amazing, Laura. Yeah. Finally, going back and rewatching, I was so impressed with Rob. The way he kept his cool with Jamie and countered every one of his smart-ass remarks with an even more clever and cutting response was so mature and beyond his years. And using Grey Wind to intimidate the Kingslayer was brilliant. He would have made a very good King of the North if, like his father, he didn't succumb to his sense of righteousness, honor, and love. In the Game of Thrones, that, that'll that get you killed every time. <laughs> Yeah, definitely will. Cheers, Laura. <laughs> Next comes from Jill Moreau. Hey, Jill. Kristen and Duncan. Ooh, it sounds like she knew beforehand. <laughs> we may be friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I knew she knew too. Uh, having Jason announced it on the podcast on Walking Dead cast a couple weeks ago, so it was yeah. out there. Um, Having all those babies killed was and always will be very difficult to watch. My true unwavering hatred for Joffrey was cemented here. Yeah, definitely. Seeing Rob bring Grey Wind in to have his chat with Jamie was pretty awesome. (laughs) Gotta love the intimidation he was going for. Liked seeing Bran as acting Lord of Winterfell. Boy, how he has changed since then. Seeing Danny's Mm -hmm. baby dragons was adorable. R.I.P. Viserion. 
all in all, great opener to the season. Yes. Oh, and, and she did put R.I.P. Drogon in the original, but I oh, you fixed it. <laughs> I think she, yeah, I think she she meant Viserion. So. Definitely. Um, if I'm wrong, Jill, let me know. <laughs> I think I'm right. You're, yeah, you're right. He's not dead, right? right? So it's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> and also, that reminds me, we got a little scene uh, when we first shows up, and it pans up Daenerys's body from behind, and we see Drogon sitting on her show on her shoulder, and um, the first thing we get is the. The sex lady, the the one who Viserys hired oh, to yeah. teach Danny how to sex good, <laughs> how, to, how to do very how, how to, to do sex good sex. Good. <laughs> uh, yeah, she she was the one that was in the bathtub with with Viserys and like getting all hot over, right. over the, uh, the like the concept of the dragons, which like got her all like aroused. You know, she like mm-hmm. wanted to see a dragon, and so now she's she's seeing a dragon. Like, how freaking cool is that, man? Viserys just missed it. <laughs> yeah, a little bastard. Uh, yeah, well, he doesn't deserve him. Right. Oh, that's so funny. Now that I'm thinking about it, she's sitting in the tub with him, and she's like, "Have you ever seen a dragon?" And that totally foreshadows him never seeing a dragon, but her getting to see a dragon, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like. Which that. makes me happy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, Dave Bird. Dave says, Boyg. <laughs> Says a solid premiere builds on everything from season one and does a good job of setting up what's to come in season two. We have Tyrion showing up in King's Landing as acting Hand of the King. Rob continues his war. Danny starting her journey with baby dragons and the Night's Watch going beyond the wall. Not to mention the introduction of characters who will play big parts over the next few seasons. Sour-faced Stannis, <laughs> Melisandre and the lovable Onion Knight. Yeah, I love the Onion Knight. I do He's too. one of my favorites. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people, I don't know if you've noticed this over the years, I've noticed that a lot of people just always hate or not hate, but they just never like the premiere, uh, the first episode of Game of Thrones. And what? I think what a lot of what I, it, it's true. It's a lot of people have more complaints over the years of the premiere. And I think it's, you know, it's a mixture of hype, excitement and the fact that they need to set up their season. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that's crazy because I, I had heard so much hype about the show and none of the hype got me excited. Um, I didn't think it was something that I would be even be interested in. And one day randomly, I was just like, fuck it. Like, uh, fine, I'll throw it on. And literally within 15 seconds, I was like helplessly and and endlessly hooked. Yeah. Those like cartoon eyes, um, cartoon love eyes. You know yeah. What I'm talking about. Totally. Yeah, yeah, instantly. So, I thought it far exceeded anything that I imagined for it, even the pilot episode. So it's surprising to me. And oh, they they had originally shot a different pilot, which was which people may have um, had even worse feelings about. <laughs> do you know? Do you know that? I think I do know that it was. It was with the, it was with different characters, wasn't it? Or different a lot of actors. different actors. Grim was going to mm-hmm. be featured in it. Um, they ended different up, Daenerys. Yeah, different Danny. Different Cat. Uh, um, Illyrio Mopatis was de- designed very differently, uh, more book like, and they didn't. Apparently, it didn't act like people were watching it. And by the end of the episode, they weren't aware that Jamie and Cersei were like brother and sister, and like all this stuff. So they had to sort of rewrite it to make it more, make the details more apparent. And I think they did a really good job. Um, yeah, doing I that agree. without seeming too explainy. A, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, pretty, absolutely, pretty awesome. 
Um, Emily Reeves says, all of those bastards getting killed reminded me of how King Herod had every boy under two years old killed because he was afraid Jesus was going to grow up and steal the crown. Bam! More religious symbolism in this episode. There you go. Just adding to it. When have we ever talked about symbolism like this, really, to any extent in Game of Microphones? We haven't, right? So all of a sudden, it's just in this episode, everybody's picking up on it, apparently. I'm telling you, we're going to have our own segment. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Oh, man. That's <laughs> the, uh, the segment of black and white, we'll call it. Like the house of black yes. and white. Oh, I like it. Um, <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Yeah, good, good job, Emily. Uh, Wendy Ott Eppers says Stannis's maester tries to poison Melisandre. Love this point of view in the book. This little scene doesn't do it justice. Cersei loses control of Joffrey and Joffrey takes care of his competition. <clears throat> Sansa and the Hound save Joffrey's fool by fooling Joffrey. <laughs> Wendy had the greatest comments on this part, like on the Patreon rewatch. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. Yeah. I love that last one. Sansa and the Hound save Joffrey's fool by fooling Joffrey. <laughs> I know. I love it. Yeah, I put I put together, Wendy, I put together a, a lot of your little comments because you had like little one-liners that I loved. So I just put them all together because I thought they were fantastic. Yep. She does them with pictures and everything. Wendy's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, you guys liked Wendy she when she co-hosted. She did a fantastic job too. when she was on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Definitely. We'll have to have her back. Um, our next is an email from Archmaster Rennie. Hey, Archmaster Rennie. Great job on the rewatch podcast for season one. Now on to season two. There's a king in every corner now. <laughs> As, <laughs> who said that? Catelyn in this episode, right? Yes, another good line. Yeah. Lots of good lines this episode. Season two starts out almost as strong as season one. There are some classic moments in this episode, like when Tyrion walks into the small council meeting whist- whistling Reigns of Castamere and tells Cersei she looks beautiful. War agrees with you. <laughs> Snap! <laughs> <laughs> this is perhaps the best season for Tyrion's wit. And we get Bran's wolf dreams. I love seeing... I love Bran seeing himself as summer in the Godswood pond reflection. Yeah. Then later, seeing himself as himself in the pond reflection. Oh, I didn't even realize. Melisandre is introduced. And what great casting Carice Van Houten is in this role. And we get, mm-hmm. yeah, and we get Daenerys wandering in the desert. She'll continue to wander right up to until season seven. <laughs> yeah, if not through the desert, through her own mind and uh, morality. Um <laughs> I've come to think her whole plot line through all the seasons up to season seven is really just about waiting for her dragons to grow. <laughs> Two observations. Baby Drogon is really cute. Craster and his keep are not cute, but both are <laughs> monsters. <laughs> we tend to remember that about Craster and forget it about the dragons. Archmaster Rennie. That's a good point. That is a very good point. Yeah, I guess monster is a relative term. Yep. And, you know, I gotta say, I don't, I don't, Rennie, I don't think I agree with you about um, Danny just waiting around for her dragons to grow. I think that, um, gosh, I love her arc. I think that she accomplished a lot and did a lot. And while she couldn't cross the sea until her dragons were grown, I think she also couldn't cross it without the unsullied or um, the support of the second sons that she left behind or, you know, the kingdoms that she actually formed alliances with before she left. And um, and without herself, I think the largest part of the equation may be finding herself um, and figuring out what it means to be a leader and how she wants to rule. 
Absolutely. Um, and she learned that in Marine. Yeah. So I think that it was about both her dragons growing and their mother growing to be the uh, Yeah. Well, waiting for her dragons to grow allowed her to grow into the type of leader that she wanted to be, that she felt comfortable being. Yep. And without that sense of self, there was no way she would have gotten as far as she did in season seven. No way. Yeah. And I think there's the whole, there's been the the concept of the Miranese knot, which, uh, have you heard of that, Kristen? Mm-mm. It's basically the the idea that George created this situation, George R. R. Martin created this situation in Marine and tied himself into a knot in terms of like uh, writing. How to get he got, out of it. Yeah, how to untie it, essentially, it was the mm-hmm. problem. And people have been complaining about it for a long time or whatever. But I think that it ended up working to the benefit of the story as a whole because the process of untying this knot is essentially the process of Danny like growing and learning and becoming a leader. Um, so mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think that I, I like it overall, but I can yeah, understand I people's too. frustration with it too. Well, yeah. Marine was a frustrating time. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, oh, you're um, up, right? Yeah. From Gerald Wilkin. I'm from Germany. So please excuse my English if it's not the best. Yay. Germany. J- Germany again. Shout out to Germany two weeks in a row. What's up, man? Yay. Thanks for writing. I listen to all episodes of this podcast, and I like it that you cover all episodes of the first seasons one by one after covering them in season one in the first place. So probably uh, the whole... Okay, so the very first episode of this podcast was done. Um, they talked about um, season one as a whole. Yeah. It, we, so now we're going back and doing every episode individually. Right, yeah, we covered them in, in whole seasons. Yeah, like one episode right. per season. Right, cool. Yeah. Um, I'm also a book reader and my name is Gerald and I'm pretty tall around six feet, seven inches. And so my favorite character of the Song of Ice and Fire is someone who is rarely mentioned in the books and sadly not at all in this awesome TV series, the White Bull of the House Hightower, my real life nickname for a part of my life. But that may be a topic for another time. You're going to need to write us back and tell us why that was your nickname for a part of your life. I'm, I want to know why that was your nickname. Ooh, write us. Tell us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I did a review of the first season over the last few weeks, just like you do, I think I recognized a foreshadowing of Ned's death in and after the tri- trial by combat, which Braun fights for Tyrion at the Eyrie that I had never heard of before. After the fight, while the King of the Vale is still falling after Bronn kicks him out of the moon door, Liza Aaron shouts, you don't fight with honor. And Bronn simply replied, no, he did. Well, Duncan, I'm looking forward to hear to hearing it in your voice play if my message gets on the show. You don't fight with honor. No, he did. <laughs> and after Eddard of the House Stark, Warden in the North, Hand of the King, etc., is probably the most honorable person in Westeros, Essos, and beyond, he had the same fate as that poor falling knight to get killed instead of a Lannister, Tyrion, who might be a Targaryen, and this fuckface Joffrey, who was never a Baratheon. <laughs> So that's all for now. Thank you for your podcast. I hope you will discuss this in a future episode, even when the episodes where the action happens are already covered. Best wishes from Germany, Gerald. And remember, chaos is a ladder. Yes, chaos. Oh, is Gerald, a ladder. that was great. That you know what? That was a that's nice. I um, I think that you're right about the foreshadowing. Yeah, I've never picked f- that up either. That's a nice pull. 
Yeah, really good. Very, uh, very uh, good observation there. It's totally true too, because Ned tried to fight with honor, and you know he didn't get the moon door, but he got, <laughs> he got his head fell <laughs> for sure. Right. You know. So Dunka Shane Gerald. Yes, Dunka. Our next email is from Sir Pete of Longwood. Hey guys. Okay, this one's important. Who was hotter, Ashara Dane or Shira Seastar? From reading George's description, George's descriptions, and what other characters say about them, these two are the are the two comeliest hotties ever to hit Westeros. I'm going wow. with Shira. One green eye and one blue, hot. Plus, she's kind of spooky, and I like that. <laughs> I'd like to think Nissa Nissa was a total smoke show as well. We get no description of her. None other than what Azor Ahai says to her, um, know that I love you best of all that is in this world, and I just don't see the hero that wakes the dawn falling that hard for anything in less, less than a stone-cold fox. <laughs> this is hard-hitting yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. commentary here, Super guys. There's real deep stuff going on. Um, as for hot guys, I'm comfortable enough with my sexuality to know a good-looking guy when I read one. I think Rhaegar Targaryen, Arthur Dane, and Euron Greyjoy would probably have the least problems making the eight. Love, <laughs> Sir, oh, discuss, love, Sir Pete of Longwood. You love making the eight, right? That's like your favorite thing, Kristen. So. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have a voicemail from Kira Brown. Hey, guys, welcome back. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving, Turkey Day, or, you know, Friendsgiving, however you celebrate it. I'm going to jump right into my rant. So, freaking Joffrey. He's still a damn <laughs> savage. Um, I was While I was watching the episode, I'm pretty sure that the person that tipped off Ned and John Aaron about Robert's ill, gross, uh, strong seed, um, also pointed Jeffrey towards all of Robert's bastards. Um, and I'm definitely looking uh, at Littlefinger for that. Um, why yeah. else would Joffrey get a yeah. his bonnet about hunting them all down? Um, and there just has to be a book detailing the king's mistresses just in case another heir is needed. Um, or the hookers just didn't know how to keep a damn secret. Uh, poor Megan by the way, R.I.P. Um, it, it's got to be really hard to find a good mistress in King's Landing. Um, secondly, uh, Rob <laughs> totally would have made such a great king. Um, he had the restraint and strategy in everything except when it came to women. I love Caitlin, Catelyn, but why send her off alone? Yes! She, she does not do very well um, handling negotiations, and we've seen that twice already. She needs a chaperone wherever she goes at all times. Um, <laughs> and Danny, when I think of how far she came from reclaiming any throne, it makes me so tired. Um, <laughs> she's been so lucky <laughs> and strong to have survived all that's been thrown at her, and I love how she's still a little bit bitter about her jackass brother. He didn't know anything about being a dragon. You can almost hear her say that asshole at the end. Yes. Um, and for Stannis and Melimel, they were so way off about each other. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering about the Lord of Light and the old gods. Um, like, how could they be that far off um, 
on uh, showing people visions. Like, are they fighting with each other for followers? Like, is this just a Twitter beef that's been blown way out of proportion? Trigger fingers uh, turned to Twitter lastly, fingers. lastly, <laughs> uh, about John. Dude, he, he, sit down, young Padawan. Uh, you, you've got to get out in here. You get out in these streets and lose your damn mind. It's crazy because Mormon basically did what to John, what every black mother has done to their child at restaurants, malls and grocery stores across America. Don't you embarrass me out here. Now we're going to go back inside and you better not touch anything. You better not fix your mouth to ask for nothing and don't say nothing until we leave. Um, As I was watching that scene, it kind of hits me like every time Mormon asked John who he was I kept saying he's King Aegon Targaryen, motherfucker. Like, that's the only thing that I could, I kept thinking. And that's when I kind of realized how important it was that John doesn't know who he really is, even now in season seven. Um, yeah. Of course, it would have changed the story entirely. There wouldn't be a story because he'd be dead. But if he managed to survive with that knowledge, he would just be a real smug bastard all the time <laughs> and that is exactly what the world did not need anymore yeah. of um again going back to joffrey and kind of stannis and renly too at this time they were both a little arrogant and you know just thinking that the world owed them something it was a, it's kind of off-putting um what and all right on that note rant over um i'm gonna stop myself before i wear out my welcome <laughs> and never my um, I'm really <laughs> glad that all of the Throners have a place to share our thoughts. I really love hearing everybody's theories and feelings, and it keeps us all sharp until season eight. Um, well, I uh, hope you guys have a great week and weekend. And if I am too busy, I hope to talk to you guys after Christmas and New Year's. Enjoy yourselves. Bye. Bye, Kira. Hi, Kira. Thanks so much for uh, writing in or, you know, leaving your voicemail. I always love you hearing from Kira. What I love Kira. is that everybody has so much to say about it and it's all good stuff, you know? Yeah, definitely. People can talk about this subject forever and that's wonderful. Yeah, there's really a lot to to digest and discover and learn and observe. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, so... Pete of Longwood, just, you know, learn that. <laughs> learn some of the good stuff, okay? Send, send in something good. <laughs> All right, that's our show, episode 53. Thanks for listening, everybody. Next week, we'll be covering Game of Thrones season two, episode two, The Nightlands. If you'd like to call in, you can always call at 813-JOFFREY. That's 813-563-3639. You can always send your ravens to ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash gompodcast, youtube.com slash gameofmicrophones, Instagram, Twitter, etc. Find us. We'd love to chat with you. All right. See you next week. Do you understand the hearts that would break all over this world? Yeah, but like, do you like understand the metal songs that would be written as a consequence? <laughs>
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.